Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. And this week, as we enter our penultimate episode of our Summer of Scorsese, we're also kicking off our Christmas coverage. And joining us for that is the wonderful, joining me as ever, is the wonderful Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm doing very well, Darren. How are you? I'm getting by. I'm getting by. Um, it's it's interesting kind of getting towards the, the end of this. It feels like we're actually approaching yeah. the end of something that's been running Can, literally. Canonically... Canonically, there's another week left. There is, there is one more week left. There is one more week left. The end is in sight, and I'm sure that next week's episode will be a concise, disciplined, tight, like an hour thirty max is what I reckon. I, it will I be. see no problem um, with that prediction whatsoever. Um, but yes, tightly wound clock, <laughs> um, like precision. Every part has its place. But yes, so uh, we are doing a very special episode. We're crossing over with uh, the wonderful Carl Sweeney from the Movie Palace. How are you, Carl? Doing very well, Darren. Thank you. You know, certainly as far as 2020 goes. Um, ironically, I think I felt more summery when we talked about White Heat than I do now for the summer of Scorsese. But I don't know. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, time, time works differently in a pandemic. Yeah. Um, I did also say this is this also feels a bit like a Christmassy movie. So it's kind of nice that we're kind of releasing it in like late November. So it feels kind of appropriate. Uh, but yes. Yeah. Was was the plan always, Darren, to like like when we we were talking about the kind of summer of Scorsese, and it's like it's score, so it's like twenty, and it's summer, so it's like seven, eight months. Um, <laughs> a year. Like, um, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it did end up running about twelve weeks, which is a solid three months, which would ideally be summer in a regular year. It just so happened that this Time year was not this year was not a regular year, um, and all the best laid plans of mice and men. Unfortunately, that it's broken, Andrew. It's broken. Just can't make it work. Uh, but yes, <laughs> so what we did when we were planning this is we reached out to a couple of our former guests and we asked them what movies they would like to cover, what their favorite Scorsese movies were. And sometimes Jay just said, "Hey, you are doing a podcast with us as well." But um, when we reached out to Carl. Carl, you got back and you said you wanted to talk about Hugo. Um, now, Hugo is not actually on the list. So it's kind of, a, it was an interesting choice. What was it that kind of like made Hugo jump out to you? I didn't realize that. I thought, has, has Hugo ever been on the list? Has it got any? Hugo has indeed okay. been on the list. It's one of two Scorsese movies to drop out. Right. Um, I think it's just a natural fit between your your podcast and mine, really, in the sense that especially since in the last year or so I've branched out into doing a few more recent films, which I can kind of tether back to, you know, older cinema, um, you know, classic Hollywood, or in, in this case, mostly early early cinema. So it just felt nice. And we'd done The Aviator, of course, didn't we, uh, a while ago, which again yeah. has lots going on in terms of it's very interesting technically. It's got this kind of, um, you know, it's just very interesting to see Scorsese work in that mode. And I think he, he's doing some interesting things here too. So, and it's just very nice, isn't it? I don't know if you'll find a nicer Martin Scorsese film than this. I was trying to think. <laughs> Maybe Italian Americans. I don't know if anyone's seen that. That's quite a nice mm-hmm. film. But I think Hugo is probably, is, Hugo's yeah. must be the nicest, I think. I think so. Uh, but yeah, so what we normally do when we have guests on for this summer Scorsese, we ask them a little bit about their relationship kind of to Scorsese as a filmmaker. So kind of, if you can remember that the first time, the first Scorsese movie that you saw, which of them is your favorite? And and maybe even like what your kind of general notes on Scorsese are as a filmmaker, what your gen- general takeaway is. I can remember quite clearly when I became aware of Martin Scorsese, because it was a- around about the same time I was just starting to develop an interest in film, really. Um, so this would have been back in about the year 2000. I would have been about 14. 
Um, I just got into the stage. I'd started to buy some film magazines, and I think I bought Total Film magazine, and they had a twenty-year on retrospective on Raging Bull, and I read the article. It was very interesting. It was it didn't sound like anything I'd ever seen because mostly what I was familiar with was kind of blockbuster cinema, really. Uh, and I, I got the DVD shortly after. I saw Raging Bull, and it just blew me away just from from the beginning. From you know. De Niro bouncing around the ring to the um, Cavalleria Rusticana music. I was just like, it just hit me on a very profound level. I can't quite articulate why. I watched the film a few times and then I saw Taxi Driver and I just ticked them off. I saw, you know, Goodfellas, Cape Fear, all the ones I could find, really. So it was a very, an age when, I don't know if you guys feel this, when you're a teenager, the things you like, um, you you really like, you get these very yeah, intense, sure. yeah, you get a very intense feeling for a lot of the stuff you see at that age. And for me, Martin Scorsese was the guy, really. Um, so my favourite, I, I guess I could give two answers, though. My, Raging Bull, I, I normally list as my favourite film, but it's one I don't watch very often. I think it has that just incredible power, and I almost don't want to see it too often. I don't want it to ever sort of lose that power through over-familiarity. Uh, the one I do return to, and I watch probably two or three times a year, is Goodfellas. And I know, I know Darren, you're, one, you're in the uh, Casino is Better Than Goodfellas camp, I believe. But... Um, no, good, good fellas, just fine. Eminently rewatchable. I just think it's brilliant. Um, I suppose my Scorsese um, picks are very conventional, really. I think the big three for me are uh, Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, Goodfellas. And I think he's he's one of those filmmakers, I, I genuinely don't think he's ever made a bad film, really. I think he, he's got an incredible top tier of films and then just an immense second tier as well. I, I don't even... I don't even know what you'd say his worst film was necessarily. Even films like New York, New York, which, you know, they've got their issues or whatever. I still find them very interesting. I think there's a lot to appreciate. So, yeah, it's great to be with you to do this. And um, Hugo is an interesting one, isn't it? Because I guess kind of atypical. But that's the thing, isn't it? I don't know. You may well have discussed this on the Summer of Scorsese before, but you know there's the kind of the Scorsese makes the same film over and over again brigade. I think Hugo is probably one of the titles you would lob at people to kind of rebut that wouldn't you you say what about hugo what about Kundun? you know what about silence and so yeah so i've always been a fan of scorsese and this is an interesting one well yeah i was actually really really glad that you suggested doing this as well because like one of the things that we've kind of talked about a bit when we did the kind of this summer this season or summer of scorsese is that a lot of the movies that tend to make the list are a lot of the the archetypal Scorsese films. They're the ones that get that reaction of he just keeps making the same movie over and over again. So you have, obviously, you have Goodfellas, you have Casino, you have The Departed, you have Wolf of Wall Street. You have movies that fit within that bracket. And then, obviously, you've got, like, Raging Bull and Taxi Driver as well. And you do lose a sense of, you know, I don't want to say, you know, the better or more interesting Scorsese films, but the films that add to kind of a holistic sense of Scorsese as a filmmaker beyond the cliche of, oh, he's the one who makes movies about angry men. So stuff like Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, um, stuff like Silence, stuff like Kundun, which we did cover actually, and that was Andrew's idea, and I'm very, very glad that we did. And this Hugo, which is is exceptional in terms of the Scorsese movies that have made the list, because this is on, and I want to be very clear, this is on the surface, like from the furthest distance, squinting, having not seen the movie, this would seem like the most atypical Scorsese movie ever, um, in that it is an adaptation of a beloved children's book from 2007. Um, it was originally planned to be directed by Chris Wedge, you know, that great auteur filmmaker. Listeners may know Chris Wedge as the director of Ice Age, Robots, Epics, 
and Monster Trucks, which coincidentally has its own Scorsese connection in that it was one of the movies, along with Scorsese's Silence, that convinced Paramount that they didn't want to fund The Irishman. Um, but basically... And that they wanted to stop making movies altogether. <laughs> wasn't that... Like, like they, 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 they've only themselves to blame about Monster Trucks, don't they? Monster, okay, <laughs> like, well, this is not the Monster Trucks podcast, but the Monster Trucks story is amazing because it was apparently an executive's eight-year-old son who pitched this idea. And there's the exec- a lot of that, isn't there? Yeah. It was like, there's- what if these trucks are also monsters and they're monster <laughs> trucks? And it's like, that's a deal. We'll sign you up for a six-movie contract. I'm going to put one of our like oh, top writers on I this. I hate that kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nobody had, nobody had the heart to tell this executive. Or this like, child. Your, your, yeah. your, your kid doesn't know movies. The kid's an idiot. <laughs> He's got terrible <laughs> ideas. Your kids are yeah. morons, sir. <laughs> but uh, the, yes, uh, we're we're, we're, to, we're diverging from the main topic here. But I I, I could spend an hour I, talking about is it your kid? <laughs> but yeah, like so so like from a distance, Hugo seemed like it's it's a movie that is an awkward fit in terms of Scorsese's filmography, uh, because it was very much a movie that was originally intended to be directed by the guy who did Ice Age Robots, Monster Trucks, and Epic. And in fact, actually, like the, the wonderful thing about Scorsese making Hugo. Uh, what initially kind of drew him to the project, and we'll maybe talk a bit more depth kind of, you know, about the, the particulars of why maybe Scorsese was drawn to this film in particular. But apparently his wife at one stage just said to him, could you could you make a movie that our young daughter could watch? Um, would that be possible? Like, could you make a movie where people don't say the F word once or three or four times every minute? Uh, and there is there aren't scenes of brutal violence. Just something that we can show your daughter to give her a sense of kind of the movies that you make. And apparently Scorsese kind of took that challenge onto himself and said, yes, actually, I would like to make a children's film. And I think, well, you know, like... He kind of did half of that task. <laughs> it's like, yes, I can make a movie that our daughter can watch. No, I can't make a movie that our daughter can watch that will give her a sense of the kinds of movies that I make. Really. That's, that's a fair well, I mean, of course, there's going to be some arguments <laughs> in which this is like the most Scorsese, Scorsese movie, right? No? There absolutely is. Are you like, you not... <laughs> Like, I, not, I not know to get you too, too well, Darren. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but not, not to, like it's not exactly hidden. Like the poster for Hugo yeah. is Scorsese recreating Safety Last as a children's film. Like I would argue this is like a like if you said Scorsese make a children's film, like he's practically played by Michael Stuhlbarg in the film without getting too spoilery. There's a Michael Stuhlbarg character who is basically Martin Scorsese in this movie, uh, which is great. But yes. Yeah, so, <clears throat> So Andrew, you look like you're you're gritting your teeth. Yeah, I'm really <laughs> sorry. I feel like it, it's gonna like I'm I'm maybe gonna try not to talk very much during <laughs> this because yeah, I I I no, I, I <laughs> um, like yeah, the, that 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 Stuhlberg, um character um, character was like one of the. Yeah, no, it was 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 one of the big problems I I had with this movie, and I I found myself thinking about it today, like uh, like and over and over again thinking about uh, Michael Stuhlberg in this, and it, it making me like the movie less and less. Um, so I'm I'm but I, I'm I'm not here to kind of I guess rain on on anyone's parade. That's exactly what you're here for. 
That's like that's, like, that's your entire function. Oh, yeah. 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 Like, like, this is this is all because I was banking on this being like the most Andrew-friendly Scorsese film since Condon. Because you've been like one of the persistent themes throughout like our Scorsese podcast has been Andrew's observation that Scorsese protagonists are just gritty, grimy, deeply unpleasant people on multiple levels. And it's like Finally, we have a Scorsese movie where I feel that can't be the case unless you're, you know, I don't want to use the term heartless. Um, <laughs> I, I'll use that. It's an I'll orphan it. from. Yeah, Bradley. I mean, I, we we can get into it. Okay. okay. I mean, but it, yeah, it'll probably. It'll, it'll, I mean, yeah, it, it it might it might have to wait a little bit. Yeah. Um, In terms of this being the most Scorsese Scorsese film, I think people have said that you know there's this parallel between Hugo. And we know that the young Scorsese was, you know, often inside and he was asthmatic and all that. He had to watch life go by. So I think people have sort of seen that. And also this idea of him rescuing somebody from the doldrums, like Hugo does with George Melier. I think, you know, there's arguably something that Scorsese helped to champion somebody like Michael Powell, for instance. So I wouldn't say it's the most Scorsese Scorsese film, but I think he's a filmmaker who can't help but put his own imprint on any story he tells. So... It's a shame, Andrew, but it so displeased you. I'm sad to hear that. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it it wasn't it wasn't uh, uh, they, they, they like I'm I'm I I can't be that hard on it. It it it, it there's a lot to admire about the movie, but most most mostly, I I guess I found it annoying. Um, <laughs> uh, but 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 yeah, no, I, I I'm I'm more looking forward to hearing kind of what people liked about us. It might not be something that I watch myself um, ever again. Maybe until I have children. Yeah. Ever again. <laughs> um, yeah, and want to, or yeah, maybe not ever again. But um, who knows? What What I will say, actually, uh, just to bring that back to what Carl said there, like Hugo illustrates one of the things that I think we talked about repeatedly on this kind of podcast season that we've done, which I absolutely love about Scorsese, which is no matter the project that you give him, no matter the film that you ask Scorsese to make it will always and inevitably be drawn towards the gravity of like the things that Scorsese wants to talk about. Yeah. Like I mentioned that like you go from a distance doesn't look like a Scorsese film, but when you watch it, I think even if you weren't told it was a Scorsese film, you would suspect it was either a Scorsese or a filmmaker who shared a lot of the obsessions or attempts to recreate mm. um, kind of like a Scorsese movie in terms of its interests, in terms of like its occupations, in terms of the way that it's shot, the, the cinematography, the use of technique and craft, but even like it, its obsessions. Yeah. Um, like this is a children's film that features an extended sequence set in the film library. Mm. The made up and the library. Sequ- but I, <laughs> I don't, I don't think you can say that that's, kind of something that marks out Scorsese as a director. Like all, m- most film directors think that directing films <laughs> is the most important, interesting thing <laughs> that like you, 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 you could ever think of. And that the history of cinema is what cinema should be about. Um, like, like the, and that's the, what the kids love the, in their children's movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But they, they, like like um, t- Tarantino certainly kind of, um, is a filmmaker who is in love with film and wants yeah. to kind of um, uh, like make the audience um, in in love with uh, film as well. 
like there, there, there's, there's, there are so many filmmakers who are all about um, films about films. Kind of that 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 it that it doesn't really kind of like like to me I know like like having 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 done like ten <laughs> Scorsese movies like like not 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 being a Scorsese expert I certainly wouldn't have noticed it even after doing like ten Scorsese movies <laughs> I didn't come away from it like like I didn't like this but not for the same reason that I that I disliked some. Of the Scorsese movies for very different reasons, <laughs> like almost diametrically. Opposed. So, Andrew, isn't there something just really nice that we know? We know that Martin Scorsese is really into like film restoration and preservation. Doesn't Hugo allow yeah, him to kind of show great. that in a way that's very heartening? Don't you think? Yeah, yeah, it it does, it does. But I, like, like I feel like he he's 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 really not kind of like alone in no. in that um, in in that pursuit I, I, I think um well it was very much a theme in 2011 i mean we'll probably talk about this when we get this floor zone but 2011's big mm. theme cinematically was movies obsessed with the history of cinema uh, arriving about the time that we were switching over to digital arriving at the time that like going online was becoming a thing cinema attendance was down so like it's worth noting that this movie's biggest competitor at the oscars this year was the artist which eventually won best picture which was an ode to silent filmmaking in fact, it's notable that both Hugo um, and the artist won five awards each, if I remember correctly. I'm just going to pull up the, the data that I have here. Um, Hugo ended up with 11 uh, Oscar nominations. The artist ended up with 10. And Hugo was seen as kind of like the secondary contender. The artist was always the strong favorite through award season. But Hugo was seen as the potential upset, the film that could steal it if an upset happened. But I mean, even at the same time, you had other movies in release, like, say, My Weekend with Marlon. Uh, which was the the film starring Kenneth Branagh um, and Michelle Williams. Yeah. Uh, but you also had um, like Spielberg's War Horse, which was an extended homage to John Ford, like How Green Is My Valley and stuff like that. And even that, that year as well, you also had J.J. Uh, Abrams' Super 8, which was itself a homage to Steven Spielberg. Mm. So you very much like, you know... A Midnight in Paris? It's a perennial mm-hmm. obsession, though. Oh, it is, but it was like very both, much concentrated... Both, both in terms of like, there's always something threatening... Hollywood and the way cinema was and that's is something is being lost like if it, if it's not like the VCR machine it's it's Netflix <laughs> oh, it's television. Kind of, or, or yeah or, television yeah Netflix, or it's like singing in the rain like and stuff or talkies the, or yeah exactly I mean the, the Paramount the, decree I mean, and stuff like that use the kind of threat of silent film kind of or talkies to replace silent film when it actually was about television replacing cinema in reality that's at the time, mm. like it, it, it's been, it's yeah. old hat to some degree, but it doesn't mean it's not there, and it doesn't mean it's not an obsession of Scorsese just because other people do it also. Yeah, and I do think that like that that ebbs and flows over time, yes. and I think that like 2011, 2011, 2012 was a moment where that was very much flowing yeah. plus three because uh, you have yeah plus three D, which we'll probably talk about in in a moment as well. Uh, but yeah, but four 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 D. With, uh, with the, with the uh, yeah. 40x, we have to ask Jason about his 40x experience. Yes, because you me, did. Really? You, did you actually do your 40x I experience? Did not. Okay, <laughs> we we did. There was a while where I was trying to convince Jay to do sign up and do 40x in Cine World. Jay's cinema of, as a, of experience, I think, was what yeah, I would call the were. kind of like the pitch that I had. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I feel like that's not a runner. Okay. So before we jump into the spoiler zone. Um, just very quickly, 
Do we remember the first time that we saw Hugo? So, Carl, do you remember the first time that you saw Hugo and what your initial reaction to it was? Uh, yeah, I saw the film when it was released in cinemas. I believe I took... My, my son would have been either four or he might just have turned five. I can't quite remember um, when the UK release date of Hugo was. But that's one of the things... I liked the film. He liked the film, I think, from what I can recall, he was into the film for a, a while and then it kind of becomes a film studies sermon. <laughs> I found it a bit less interesting. <laughs> Um, and I've watched it again with my daughter, like my daughter now is four, and I watched it with her about a week ago, and a very similar thing, really, kind of into the film, and then her attention kind of drifted off, and kind of got her back a few times, you know, you get some chases, and you get, you get some kind of excitement. Uh, it's a weird kind of, I'm sure we'll talk about this, it's a weird kind of hybrid. It's like, it works for me, that's what I'll say. And I can understand why it doesn't work for a lot of children, necessarily. And maybe a lot of people who otherwise like Scorsese, I get it. But I, the, the, the hybrid of things that it's doing, I find quite nice and, and enjoyable. Um, Carl, did you see it in cinemas in 3D? And do you have any memory of that, actually? Because this is notably one of the big movies in 3D. Scorsese shooting in 3D, generally regarded as, along with, say, I think, Werner Herzog's Cave of Forgotten Dreams from the previous year, as one of the rare movies that perhaps justified its 3D. But do you remember seeing it? Uh, and did you see it in 3D? Uh, yeah, I saw it in 3D. I also rewatched it in 3D the other day. I've got a 3D TV. I haven't used it for a 3D film in, like, a couple of years, I don't think. Um but this is the thing. I watched the bone. I watched it first in two D, and then I watched the bonus features on the disc. And in the main making of, they spend about fifteen minutes talking about all about, all about the three D and how much attention they spent on it. And I was kind of thinking, this is interesting because I imagine most people who watch Hugo now probably won't be watching it in three D. You know, um, even if they have a three D Blu Ray, I think a lot of TVs now aren't made with the three D function. I think it's a pain for a lot of families. Like, like in my family, we haven't got enough pairs of glasses for everybody to sit around and watch it. You know. Um, I think though, it's, this is probably about the best use of 3D that I've seen. It is apparent that he's given a lot of thought to how it was going to work. Um, he also, what I like is he's decided he's not above doing the obvious 3D things that people say are a bit gimmicky, you know, pointing swords in your face or, um, I think it's Django Reinhardt's guitar poking out of the screen at one point, that kind of thing. Yeah. He also snow falling yeah. in, in the foreground as well using CGI and stuff. Yeah, yeah. He, he does. He does those things, and he also uses it well. I thought to draw us into the world through the, the use of depth, and I felt it was appropriate. You know, cause so much of the film is Hugo looking through things, looking through the gaps in the clock, where there's this degree of separation. I think the 3D kind of accentuated that. I think, I think there are problems with 3D that maybe can never be entirely overcome. I don't know what you guys think. I think some of them are intrinsic. Not everybody can speak, can perceive it, I don't think. It can be uncomfortable in certain ways. It's not always that accessible, is it, technologically? You need the glasses, it can be projected wrongly, and so on and so forth. And I think you ended up, when we had this 3D wave of like Avatar and Life of Pi, Hugo, those kind of things, I think those films I mentioned just are actually quite good uses of it, but too often 3D could either be distracting or it could go the other way. It would try not to be distracting and be too subtle. And I think Hugo is a film in the sweet spot where you'd, I still find myself quite immersed in the narrative. And I was also, at the same time, aware of all these technological enhancements going on. But it also works just fine in 2D. What do you guys think? Have you guys seen it in 3D? Um, I saw it. It's, yeah, I oh. do, yeah. I saw it in cinema. I saw it in 3D. Um, I'm not a 3D fan. I think it's crap in general terms. Um <laughs> It's gimmicky. Yeah. Get enough I, of that out here. Yeah, there's only two essential films that I've seen in the cinema in 3D that I think it benefited. Uh, this is one of them, and the other one is uh, uh, Goddard's uh, Goodbye to Language, which is 
can't, actually can't be watched without 3D. And so it's literally essential. It's And it's absolutely maddening and kind of brilliant. But I like the 3D in this. I think it works. Um, I've never had any desire to watch it again in 3D. Um, and I watched it in 2D when I rewatched it the other day because A, it, nobody sells 3D anymore because it's gone by the way the dodo. Uh, but And it works as well in 2D and probably better because it's sharper. But I think it was a it was a really interesting and immersive experience in 3D. I'd agree there uh, with that, and it made my top ten of the year when I went to see it. Um, so in two thousand and eleven, all those years ago. Is it still very popular with kind of kids movies and and also with with um, like uh, big kind of Marvel blockbusters and Star Wars movies? I think you try to sell IMAX now. I think IMAX is their uh, IMAX big, is their the big one, push yeah. kind of thing yeah, to make extra money out. Of. Yeah. But there's not that many places have IMAX, are there? Well, no, the not, here, not here in Ireland, though. but in the UK. And yeah. In the States. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, I mean I, 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 hearing that it was on 3D makes a lot of sense to me because I think watching it, I kind of think back to some scenes and think like, oh, that, that might actually be really kind of fun yeah. in 3D. But they were kind of fun anyway. Yeah. Like, like, like the... Um, the poster image, for I, example, like without getting spoilery, but the, the kid dangling off a watchtower, that sort of thing. Yeah. That sort of thing. No, but I I mean more the stuff when he's kind of inside running running about. And oh, yeah. and of, the dog's uh, head pointed out the screen, kind of uh, which I always like. Yeah, there's kind of swooping yeah, through yeah. the through the train or, station as well and stuff yeah. in the opening shot. Or even the train coming towards the screen. Yes. That they, yeah. to to yeah. accentuate the the way that it would have kind of seemed to people seeing cinema for the first time feeling like a train mm -hmm. was coming at you these days you would need to kind of have a 3d effect to, to a 4d to, um, effects a 4dx effect to, to 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 elicit that response from people because people are smarter these days and people were really stupid back then <laughs> well no, hold no. on okay, okay. that's very I'm, quick. I'm, kidding. I'm kidding i i know okay. but you you mentioned the train so we might as well actually just talk about that now because there is some discussion about whether or not the arrival of a train actually caused the panic that it's frequently cited as causing and there's some suggestion that it was exaggerated mm -hmm. or that it was just pure puff or that it was advertising revenue for uh the projector and for cinema but one of the more interesting observations that made that's made about the panic of the arrival of a train is that like just before um that that film screening um a couple of weeks beforehand um at the screening at the at the grand cafe there was actually a gigantic train crash um in the gare du uh, montparnasse and apologies for that to any french listeners Nailed um, it there. Yeah, yeah, got it in it's one it's like you speak um, the language it's a it's a remarkable yeah, yeah. We'll, but we'll we'll fix it in post. Yeah. We will not fix it in post. No. But yeah, basically, a train crashed yeah, through the front of the station. To record it <laughs> for you. Yeah. Oh, it's great. He's not doing anything else at the moment, anyway. But the Gare du Montparnasse, uh, basically, the train crashed through the front of it, which is something that Scorsese recreates at one point during this as well. So, like, there, were, you know, there was it was a very topical thing at the time, and like you could forgive audience members for perhaps having an intense emotional reaction to a train plummeting towards them in in kind of moving imagery you know just 
when a couple of weeks beforehand a train had literally crashed through the center of the town um as a result of like not stopping in the train station so you know i mean i think that's a, a bit of context around the people were stupider uh back in the old days kind of can i just can i add one more thing about the train though which is that yes. i believe the version of a train arriving in the station that we are shown in the film is apparently from 1897 not 1895 like we're led to believe apparently the film was made several times um okay and the people that we see on the station i'm not sure if it's in this version or the original 1895 version but many of them are following direction you know the family members of lumiere um they've been told not to pay attention to the camera and apparently the station itself was close to his family's uh, the, the lumiere family's country estate so that's one of the interesting things with the film, isn't it? Because you get the Melier Lumiere kind of wonders documentary, wonders fantasy kind of dichotomy, which I think people have argued is a bit simplified, um, including Jean-Luc Godard. I think you mentioned Jay. I think he said that at one point. Actually, Melier makes documentaries and Lumiere makes uh, fiction films is what he said. Yes, like that. yes, yes. Yeah. I can forgive Scorsese some of the simplifications in the film, I think, because it's this is not necessarily the place to kind of be that um, faithful to the, the factual record. I think it's... It, it's appropriate in this kind of story, I think. No. No, yeah, like... Yeah. It's more the memory and the feeling, I think. It's more... Yeah, if you have that sort of, like, um, oft-repeated but apocryphal sort of a story, then why not kind of put it into... It adds colour. Print the legend. Yeah. 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 Quite literally adds (laughs) colour. And Andrew, what about yourself? Had you seen Hugo before recording for this podcast? And did no, you see it in 3D? Um, I had not seen it in 3D and had not seen it before. <laughs> the, um, <Okay>. Before <laughs> watching it the other evening. Um, no, I hadn't uh, uh, had a chance to. I suppose, like, like wh- right. why um, would I? There, there, there's, there's kind of... There, yeah. I don't think I even would have been aware at the time of it being a Scorsese movie. And wanting to, because there there are kids movies that I will always go see. Like I will generally see a Marvel or a Star Wars movie because oh, there is. Oh. Well, I mean, <laughs> come on. Um, um, I, yeah. I, I know, but I I always love it when you bring no, this but, out. But I love like, it when it's like it let's was, poke at the yeah. Well, well, the, the, it's a strange thing. Like obviously. Like Indiana Jones is a kids' movie as well. Like, they're, right? Then there's, I guess, because people are so fond of them, they have this this idea that they're not kids' movies because they like them so much. Um, because they're but, serious art. Like you, you would go see Pixar movies as well mm-hmm. uh, because they're so great, and you might want to go see a Scorsese movie because. Um, there are so many great Scorsese movies and here's a new one and go see it. But I wouldn't have been aware of it yeah. in that context. I would have just been aware of the, there being a new kids movie out and I'm not going to see it anymore than I'm going to see kind of Shark Boy and Lava Girl or, um, or, 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 or um, Monster Trucks, I guess. Um, no, no, I... I, I <laughs> I do. I do. Now imagining if there's an alternate universe where, um, you know, sort of Chris Wells ended up directing this, Chris Wedge ended up directing this, and Martin Scorsese ended directing. There uh, is Monster because Trips. there's there is um, but... a possible universe for every um, <laughs> possibility. Every yeah, decision. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, somewhere in that exactly. multiverse. There's... 
uh, we're sitting down talking about Martin Scorsese's monster trucks, which is somehow still mm-hmm. a metaphor for the history yeah. of cinema. We're, they're, we're, or, or we're talking about like Batman into the Batman verse um, uh, instead. <laughs> or, I don't know. But this gets to something kind of interesting because Andrew, Andrew mentioned it there. Um, we've mentioned how one of the interesting things about Scorsese's films as he's gotten older and particularly with regards to the list is that as Scorsese got older, it seemed like cinema kind of caught up with him to an extent. So the you know the last couple of big films that he made ended up each being his highest grossing film ever. So The Departed was Martin Scorsese's highest grossing film ever. Then Shutter Island was Scorsese's highest grossing film ever. Hugo was not. Hugo was famously something of a massive flop. Apparently, the budget spiraled out of control because nobody working on the film had any idea how 3D actually worked. Um, they had three line producers working on it at some point. It was supposed to cost somewhere around $100 million and ended up costing $170 million. Um, and then, basically, its its US gross, I think, ended up somewhere near $62 million, And its worldwide cumulative came to about $180 million. So it was something of a flop. Uh, and in fact, there was some tension around that beforehand, apparently. And Jay, you will appreciate this. What? Apparently, Scorsese, in order to possibly preempt like, the damage that would come when this flopped financially at the box office, got ahead of it and announced the next film that he would be working on after this one, which was The Snowman, which I'm sure that we'll be covering next week on our season of Scorsese, uh, Martin uh, Scorsese's uh, uh, next I feature film. I gave you film. all the clues, Darren. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Childcatcher, yeah. I gave you all the clues. Um, but like Hugo suffered largely because nobody, as I think Andrew kind of alluded to there, nobody had any idea how to sell it. In large part because I think it wasn't the Scorsese, like we mentioned how Scorsese I don't had think a brand. It would have found its audience anyway. Like the, the, the thing that Carl said about, uh, about both his children kind of seemed yeah. very sort of telling. I don't, I don't see kind of this being something that kind of children in the kind of noughties um, who grew up will kind of look back to. Sorry, Jay. It's an older teenager's film, I think, more than anything. I think any teenagers with an interest in animation slash, you know, the older style animation as opposed to the kids stuff might get a kick out of it. Any interest in film or any interest in general kind of kind of 3D or gimmickry, I could see it. But that's a very hard sell because it's it's half that half mm. adult film really yeah um and that's a very difficult sell yeah because like yeah it, it's it's kind of like there's a certain amount of movies that will be a kind of a parent's preferred um kids movie where there will be movies yeah. where there is kind of like um funny adult humor in it that they can that they can yeah, appreciate the or where there would be something like ghibli yeah. that that parents just transcend really, really, yeah. yeah exactly yeah and maybe but 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 maybe, like the difference is that the kids would like that like a lot of <laughs> the thing i imagine about kids movies is the kids dragging you to go see it and then wanting to see it over and over again kind of um this isn't which, frozen no. yeah yeah exactly and i uh, yeah it's great. I do love the idea that, like, Martin Scorsese's idea, and apologies for Andrew for stealing this, but Martin Scorsese's idea of something for daddy <laughs> is the the entire history of cinema crammed yeah. into the background of this kid's film about an adorable orphan in a sort of, like, you know, French um, train station around 1931. But yeah, to give a sense of how badly the film 
kind of managed its release. It was released opposite The Muppets, uh, the 2011 version of The Muppets. Um, and obviously you can gather how well yeah. that went for he you. He should have released it against the sequel, which was dire. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it had Ricky Gervais in it. People would have been flocking to see uh, yeah. Hugo. And like, yeah, I, the, the Muppets the is, is really good as well. So, the, you know. the Muppets is great. I genuinely adore the Muppets as well. And That's it's worth it. noting really how much better the marketing for the Muppets was. Because I, I did a bunch of research and disappeared down a rabbit hole. And I was like, the Muppets released a spoof trailer in the style of the trailer for the girl with the dragon tattoo. <laughs> like remember that i vaguely it's, recall this we'll put it in the show notes it, Ew, it's fantastic please. um i remember it's, it's... at work one time i was like have you seen this <laughs> have you seen this new girlfriend that kermit has <laughs> like he, he, he's like rebounded straight to a pig and everyone it was straight to like like he's with another pig um and and everybody wanted to know about it. It's like what? Um it became this like like I it must have distracted us from our work for like about fifteen, twenty minutes. No doubt. Yeah, yeah. All right. So before Sorry. we jump into this four zone, three questions to get us started. So Carl do you think that Hugo belongs on a list of the two hundred and fifty greatest movies ever made? No, I don't think it does. I think that any top 250 list or my top 250 list certainly would have several Martin Scorsese films but Hugo isn't in that upper echelon for me because it's kind of it's it's a weird blend and it interests me you know you get this kind of orphan story as well as this kind of great artist reclaimed story in the second half but there's some something uneasy about the fit to me I don't, I'm not sure it quite on, on the bonus features i was talking about i think the screenwriter talked about how they wanted to make this an iconic children's story and make the station inspector an iconic children's character and i don't think this film has that kind of je ne sais quoi where they achieved that i don't think that it quite ticks all the boxes i think it's a very good film i don't think it's in the top 250 films ever made i'm afraid okay and jay what about yourself uh probably not to be honest however i i do really love it um and Again, this bloody question every time it, it really trips me up. I don't like this. Question. Don't worry, you can you can nail it next week. It'll be. Fine. Do you think so? You've got one more chance to nail it. I think I'm going to get it right next week. I do. I honestly do. Um, but it probably doesn't. However, I've a I've a massive soft spot for this, and I I and we'll get into this in a bit more detail. Obviously, when we get into the spoilers, all but I think there's something about getting older that makes this film yeah sing and. I suspect none of you guys are as old as me, so um, <laughs> that uh, that's fine. I have no bitter. idea. Uh, yeah. um, you look so handsome. With that young face. Um, <laughs> What's your skincare routine? Yeah, right. Uh, no, but it, I, because this is the first time I've watched this since 2011, and that's that's nine years. And nine years is a lifetime in a lot of ways, and. And again, I'll discuss it in a bit more detail, but I, I think it made a more interesting film and it made a richer film. Uh, so I, I love it, but it, it probably doesn't belong. Cause I think it's too, well, I, I think it was alluded to uh, by Kurt, but it's, it's too kind of idiosyncratic to fit anywhere. Even in Scorsese's own kind of filmography, it's, it kind of sits as a bit of a outlier. An outlier. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's fine. And there's nothing wrong with that. And it's great. And the more of that, it does the better, I think. But I think it's too idiosyncratic in that way to kind of fit on something like this different. So. Yeah. And that's it. like the fact that he's made so many movies, he's made 60 odd movies Jeez. and it's like, 
Yeah, and it's like this is this is an outlier. It's like you're still making outliers when you're this age, having made that many films. I kind of adore that, to be fair. Me too. But Andrew, what about yourself? Do you think it belongs <laughs> on the list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Waiting for the curveball. <laughs> no, um, I I don't. I I think if I think it's doing some really interesting things, and while 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 I don't love it, I do. I um. There's a lot to, that 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 I, I I liked about it, but it, it, it's a kind of um, it would it 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 might have an argument if it if if it kind of maybe worked in the ways that I wanted it to work, um, because I think a lot of it a lot of the movie is about things um, that have been passed by, you know, ways of thinking about the world even um that's that 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 have been um uh, supplanted i guess but to, to to the way the movie would have worked would have would have been if if they if if i think it it kind of effectively kind of made the, the argument for the way things were i think the the movie doesn't kind of deserve to be on the top 250 because it doesn't achieve that i think it kind of um it feels like it makes sense that the, the past is the past um kind of watching this movie i guess um and i i i, I think a, a great a really great movie would have would have would have maybe put put a sense in me that that we've lost a, a a, a great deal that, that that we need that even we need to get back to because it is a very nostalgic movie but that it, it didn't it didn't work um as a kind of an argument for the um and I'll, I'll get into that a little bit i guess in in the in the other side of the sport or so what i mean by that but um no no i don't think it, it belongs in the top 250 movies what it's trying to do could have got it there um for me but no i don't know i would myself would probably go with a maybe on this he says being as non-committal as usual in the sense that i think that there are enough scorsese movie on movies on there as i've discussed that kind of meet the template of a scorsese movie i wouldn't mind swapping them out for something atypical and this maybe would be atypical in that sense but also even there are a lot of movies about the history of movies on there as andrew pointed out it's like a recurring fascination in hollywood and there are a couple of them on the list i think the artist actually made the list as well for example and i would probably swap i'd probably take hugo over the so, artist as a so which scorsese film would you swap out darren if you're saying that that is a question yeah. indeed i do not know um because there's actually the, the, the departed the departed is probably the safe yeah. one um that's the safest choice even though it just won him best director and best picture but yeah the departed is probably the safe choice to get rid of there and i think even as much as i love casino casino could probably go as well what? Um, if we're like I, I I know. See, this is this For, is this is, you, this you, is the difference. Sorry, you would get rid of Casino and put Hugo on the list instead. Let's just say the Departed then. Let's go back to the first one that everybody agreed on. Um, but you like but, the I, Departed. I do like the Departed. <laughs> I also love Casino. Casino. You, how much do you love this movie? I, <laughs> this is like a Sophie's Choice. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to have to choose. Anyway. This sorry. is why they're two separate I'm, questions, I'm Andrew. Okay. See, I'm taking the format I'm okay seriously. With your maybe. 
yeah. you could have like a 250 movies that maybe could yeah. get yeah. into the yeah. yeah. General shrug. It's like my yeah. 500 movies. If, if you extend to 500, maybe. But yeah, no, okay. Here's a personal Thank- list of 250 movies that I'm not sure of. Yeah, <laughs> that I'm, I'm uncertain about. Maybe they're good, maybe they're not. Who knows these things? But yes, Andrew, that's the difference between the two questions. I am taking the format of this podcast seriously. Um, and Carl, what about yourself? Um, do you think that, would you go beyond your own personal 250s, your own 250 favorite movies? No, I don't think so. But I think if I was doing my own personal list, I would probably stack it up quite heavily with Scorsese films. But honestly, I think there are probably about 10 I would get to easily before Hugo even came into the picture. And that's not to disparage Hugo. I like this film. I just want to reiterate, you know, it's just that he's made so much good stuff. But kind of like, I think I said this when we talked about The Aviator, Darren. I think there were filmmakers who probably go for a career and maybe never make a film quite as interesting as Hugo uh, or The Aviator or whatever you want to say, you know, whichever Scorsese Condon gangs in New York, yeah, or whatever. Definitely. Yeah. So probably oh. not allowed to. <laughs> like the amount of money that this costs. <laughs> <laughs> so no, I don't. Don't think so, it would be my my two fifty. Um, I, I do like that only because nobody would tell yeah. them no. Um, that's. But uh, Jason, what about yourself? Would it be on your own personal two uh, fifty? Probably not. No, I don't think so. But I, I, I never. <laughs> One never can tell sometimes. Uh, I don't think so. You've had 12 I, weeks. Haven't you prepared your own list at this point? I, I feel it's like <laughs> the whole list is just Scorsese films. <laughs> I feel he's he's made like six films. And that, yeah, that's, that's, that's a, I love the idea that like the com- was it the conversation that kind of like promo piece that he made for that Chinese casino I is like number that. 156 <laughs> on your list. I hate um, that film. That's not a film by the way, it's an ad. Oh, like, and, I, and, and, I, and I see on Letterbox and it really irks the little me. man. It's not to be counted. I don't right. who was in it. Sorry. This is a conversation. Oh. <laughs> Are we, we, this... we doing it? <laughs> uh, actually, Let's I do, do a bonus like it episode, because there's a, there's a lot of questionable money behind it. So if you write up your street. <laughs> Listeners, you'll find that episode behind the paywall. If you can yeah. find the paywall, you'll find the episode. Um, you, you have and- to wait till next week to for our discussion of like uh, dodgy money. Maybe, <laughs> maybe we'll talk that. about that next. Perhaps, week we yeah, it's going to be very exciting if we get to that. Yeah, yeah. we're going to tease um, you now. See, listeners, if you can guess what movie we're doing next week, we'll reveal <laughs> at the end. Um, but Andrew, what about yourself? Would this be on your own personal 250? No, I sense we may know the answer. I th- to this. Yeah, I think it especially wouldn't be on my own. Um, and and it, it, I, again, if it wasn't, if it wasn't that great a movie, even which this is, like it 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 has kind of um, there 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 is some there is some very good filmmaking in the in there. But if say it was kind of a poorly executed movie that kind of uh, thematically delivered what 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 I thought it was trying to, um, then it might be on my own. But it, no, it 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 especially isn't because I I there's a lot that re- really didn't in, enjoy <laughs> at all, and I, it just kept annoying me, like popping into my head, and it's like, damn that, yeah, like yeah, no, I I it wouldn't it wouldn't be on my own two fifty because I I kind of. In spite of all it, its kind of charms, I just came away thinking the movie sucks. Um, yeah, <laughs> but but nope. but that was just my 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 kind of own opinion. Of it. 
Tell us how you really feel, Andrew. Um, <laughs> but yeah, for myself, this is interesting because I had this pretty much the same reaction that Jay had to it. When I saw it 10 years ago as a much younger man, I was like, that was fine. It's an interesting genre exercise. It's a bit uneven in places. I'm not sure. You know, the 3D is fantastic, but I'm not sure why Scorsese is doing it. You know, this is good, but it's not an all-time classic. And then I came back to it to watch it for this podcast, which is the first time that I had watched it in, you know, the nine years since its release. And I actually found it surprisingly moving and affecting. It would not be in my personal 250 at the moment, but it it's odd because, like, the difference between how I felt about it nine years ago and how I felt about it now means that if in ten years I watch it again, there's a decent chance that it might be. Um, like, that level yeah, I, of kind of magnitude. This. Yeah. That level of kind of magnitude of appreciation mm. or respect I had coming back to it um, is is kind of it's surprising to me because even though it doesn't get it into my personal two fifty or into my favorite movies ever, it gets it closer than I expected it to, um, which is is interesting. And so, I think maybe we'll talk about why that is in this in the spoilers. Sorry, Andrew. Why don't we do an episode about it in another ten years' time when we're we're still <laughs> doing the podcast? Well, I, uh, <laughs> I won't be alone if I did. <laughs> I'm not committed to anything. <laughs> With your skincare re- regime, Jay, you you'll be fine. You'll outlast the rest of us, right? I hope so. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so so my answer there is no. It would be on my own personal 250, but I wouldn't be surprised if that answer changes in 10 years. And then final question, Carl: If listeners have not yet seen Hugo, would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream Hugo on a near device where it is safe? I think. If possible, I would see this film in 3D. Obviously, it's not going to be possible for everybody. It's very expensive to do that. Um, yeah, I'm always going to answer yes to this question. I think people should see the films before they listen to the podcast. I think that Scorsese is a filmmaker who... His deep cuts are so varied and so interesting that I think if you feel like you've seen the classics, there's no reason to stop. You need to see Hugo. You need to see, you know, Bringing Out the Dead and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I would say definitely, listeners, pause the podcast, go and see Hugo. You... You won't regret it. I don't think you will. Um, and Jay, what about yourself? Oh, absolutely. Um, I like it a lot. I can't see why... Uh, particularly, like, if you're a Scorsese fan, that this film has kind of slipped by you, which I can understand. I think Andrew alluded to the idea that if, if you weren't a particularly strong Scorsese fan, then might have, you might have missed that he even made it to some degree. And particularly that it didn't do huge business is probably another reason that you might have missed it. And I think that there's a, there's a lot to appreciate within that, even if, even if you're just a casual fan. And I think it works in and of itself, although not without a challenge to some degree in how it's structured and what it's doing. Because as we've alluded to in the weeks previously, when we were talking about Scorsese, he can't help himself <laughs> to almost uh, self-sabotage films because yeah. he wants to do a certain thing a certain way. And that's like, this, this is what you're going to get. He's not going to change now. Uh, this oh, yeah. is who he is. He'll no. make the film that he wants. Like to he make. says, he made this movie for his daughter, <laughs> and it's like did. you can tell that really that the child that he really wanted to make it for was twelve-year-old Martin Scorsese. Basically, well, yeah. I bet you, I bet you, his daughters watched The Searchers before this. Though, you know? <laughs> <laughs> of course, they did. They had there was a little curriculum. I mean, like it's great when you read interviews of people who like work with him on these films. They're always like, "Oh, he gives me like a set of movies I have to watch before I show up to work." Um. And it's like, I kind of, I kind of admire that, to be fair. Um, and Andrew, what, what about yourself? Would you recommend that people pause the podcast and seek out Hugo? 
Yeah, no, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be um, any, any, I, I don't think anyone is persuaded by what I've said so far anyway, but just in case you are and are kind of on the fence about watching it, like, no, uh, 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 go ahead and watch it because I, 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 I don't, um, I, I don't, I don't think you should be put off by, by it. Um, by, like, I, I won't be rushing to, to, to see it again. Um, but um, I, I, I recommend uh, people check it out anyway because um, yeah, there, there's 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 some interesting things going on, um, and you you're likely to enjoy it a lot more than I do. Um, <laughs> like that should be on the <laughs> on the poster. <laughs> I like that. A magical movie by A. O. Scott from the New York Times. You'll probably enjoy it more than I did, Andrew Quinn, the two fifty. And uh, yeah, I, I, I would absolutely wholeheartedly recommend it. I think, like, I genuinely, again, I think we joked about this in the podcast before, I feel a little bad that I've subjected Andrew to 12 weeks of, like, Scorsese movies um, that he hasn't necessarily loved, like, continuously and without interruption, without stop. That said, one of the things that I kind of regret a little bit about Scorsese season is, A, that it comes to an end at all, uh, but also is, B, that, like, the movies that we cover aren't the unconventional ones or aren't the unusual ones or aren't the buried ones that we're not talking about Alice doesn't live here anymore or that we're not talking about after hours or that we're not talking about age of innocence or Cape fear or whatever. I kind of like, I, I feel a little sad that we didn't get to talk about as many of those off kilter weird ones as I would have liked. I love that we got to talk about Cundin. Thank you, Andrew, for that. And I love that we got to talk about gangs of New York. Thank you, Jay, for that. And yeah, I, I would recommend this for exactly the same reason I would recommend those, which is there's a popular image of who Scorsese is as a filmmaker and the kind of films that he makes and, and the stereotype of him. And while some of those stereotypes most definitely apply here in that Scorsese is a huge frickin' film nerd, um, some of the other um, aspects of Scorsese's kind of cliche image don't really apply here. There's very little of Scorsese, the demented 70s sex goblin, although I think a little bit of it creeps in. Uh, and we'll probably talk about that in the spoiler zone. But it, it it's very much kind of disconnected or different from what the popular image of Scorsese is. And I think that's lovely. I think it's worth celebrating. And I think if you are curious about his films and if you haven't seen it, absolutely uh, worth your time to see it even if you don't love it i think that you'll be you know impressed by it technically and hopefully just kind of glad to see this side of the director so with that in mind then we will segue neatly into the spoiler zone spoiler zone so carl what is hugo about for you well, most obviously, I think it's about the marvels of the cinematic medium itself. Uh, obviously, the subject matter, you know, Hugo's love of movies, his rediscovery of George Melier. Also, in the way Scorsese brings this story to life, you know, the, the period recreation, the film clips, I think, are great. Uh, and of course, 3D, as we've already discussed. So it's an interesting paradox, isn't it, about doing this film about a pioneer of early cinema using the filmmaking technique that was getting another big push at this point in the early 2010s. Of course, another big push because 3D's had a long history. But I think the paradox is very engaging and quite productive, you know. And just in general, more broadly, away from Hugo, I think I love that. I love that Scorsese's never been somebody who's rested on his laurels, has he? I think maybe we've talked about this before, Darren, but 
things like the aviator and the way he plays around with the color palette of that film or all sorts of other things really some of the subject matter he's taken on in these kind of offcuts like we say the but, irishman uh, and embracing... cgi and that sort of stuff and yeah the de-aging technology with the irishman the cgi las vegas in in sort of casino and stuff like that yeah the, the fantastic sets in gangs of new york whatever it is he's got that curiosity to him that i think is great and you know i'm assuming he'll never lose it so it's great that um he did this. I think that the 3D. It's interesting what you're saying about the some the, the primers he would give his crew. And I think he, he screened several 3D films for the crew of Hugo. I think he made them watch things like Dial M for Murder, uh, Kiss Me Kate, House of Wax, which I think he described as the best 3D film ever made. And it was made by a director with only one eye in uh, Andrew the Top. Um, so I like the technological interplay here between you know it's like the cinema of attractions figure in Melier and. In, in a way, you can argue 3D is kind of a return to that, where it's it's kind of showing you things you haven't seen before. It's thrusting stuff in your face, you know. So very much about Scorsese's reflections on cinema for me. And what I think is actually interesting is that, you know, as much as we talk about Scorsese and particularly his interest in film preservation, I think it first really yeah. came up when we were talking about Raging Bull, ironically enough, because the reason why he shot Raging Bull in black and white was because the color that he used on New York, New York had already begun to fade in the three years. And obviously cinema, you know, film preservation has become a bigger deal for Scorsese outside of that. But what I find fascinating about Hugo is that it's not just the like modern day segments that he shoots in 3d it's not just like the 1931 version of paris he also is not afraid to retouch some of the older footage or some of the older films that he plays in clips and to render them in 3d as well and i find that kind of interesting because normally when you have a reputation as a film preservationist or when you have a reputation in Hollywood as somebody who has a very old-fashioned idea of how things are done. So say, for example, the obsession with real film that exists with directors like, say, you know, Christopher Nolan, Quentin Tarantino um, and Paul Thomas Anderson and, and other directors like that. There's a real tendency to treat it as kind of like snobbery or puritanism. I find it interesting that Scorsese, despite being a big proponent of like film preservation, film maintenance, um, that he's willing to, in this film, actually tinker with the old-fashioned kind of like, you know, the, the silent movies, the classic cinema that he's alluding with. He's able to, he's willing to turn those into 3D, to modernize them, not just the story he's constructing around them. I find that kind of yeah. very interesting and vital and heartening in, in a sense. Well, I think it's in the spirit of what George Melier would have done, maybe. I think it's that center adventurous adventurousness and... What I'm talking about, I think Scorsese, I've seen a quote from him where he talked about somebody kind of explaining the rules of 3D to him. Uh, you know, you can't do, you can't push it too far. You, you shouldn't do too much uh, in people's faces. And Scorsese said, I'm not sure if I understood them, but I pushed against the perceived boundaries with a project that seemed to lend itself naturally to 3D. He says, like, you learn there are limits. There are times when it, you know, it becomes like kind of an eyesore, but you just keep testing it. You keep chipping away at it. And if it couldn't be done, they'll work it out. So I'm glad that he ignored those who urged him to basically not lean into the gimmickiness, because I think it does work rather well. Like I said, it's kind of a shame that I don't think many people these days will see the 3D version, and I don't think, you know, I think as much as there was that kind of push to 3D, it's kind of faded away, hasn't it? It's been a couple of years since I've seen the 3D film in the cinema. It's... Uh... I think they're uh, yeah they've stopped making 3D televisions yeah, as well. I think, I think there are more great 3D films 3D. than Jay does though, but maybe not. Like I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> have a massive list of them myself. In terms of the modern wave, so what what would you add to it then? Presumably, Cave of Forgotten Dreams, maybe maybe Avatar. Obviously, I think is something that 
arguably on, is only really a great film if you see it in 3D. But is there anything well, else? Well, I liked Life of Pi in 3D. I liked uh, Basil Ehrman's take on The Great Gatsby. I liked the use of 3D rather than the adaptation itself, I think. I think there's a difference between the filmmakers who... We kind of got into this weird thing with 3D, didn't we, where, you know, you go and see it in 3D if you want to pay the surcharge or go and see the 2D. And it was, it was quite kind of non-committal, which I found a bit unsatisfying. Like, tell me if this is a film you want me to see in 3D or not. You know, what's the best... How does the director want me to see this film? Um, yeah, like 3D post-production conversion and stuff yeah. like that was a huge deal. And even things like... Well, to be fair, Cameron went back and he redid 3D on Titanic, actually, to, to be fair. Stop. so do you, do you remember that, Jay? Oh no! No, I, I don't don't give. I don't like post version. I don't like. They did it with Terminator as well. The Terminator Two, I think, they did a while back as well. Um, they did it. They start. They start. Little man. That it just seems absolutely absurd. It just if you want to hammer a final nail in something, is ring it out for another dollar like mm-hmm. that, and people will really, really stop trusting. Yeah. The message in general. I think it's it. It it looks like a hucksters business then. Which it kind of is anyway, but it, at least if somebody's doing something with it, you can understand people's reason for seeing it. But if you're selling something that really shouldn't be selling, people are just going to run away from everything. Isn't that kind of what happened after Avatar? We had like Alice in Wonderland converted into 3D, and there is a difference yes. between... But then again, something like Gravity, I imagine, was done in post, because obviously Sandra Bullock and George Clooney weren't obviously <laughs> weren't really floating around in space. So I think it's... <laughs> weren't they? Yeah, I believe so. <laughs> Shattering all the illusions yeah. here. Um, um, so I don't know. I think that I think it's a very difficult tool, because sometimes, even in Hugo, I think sometimes it looks like a diorama. It looks kind of, has this pop-up quality to it, which is a yeah. bit of a distraction. I think Hugo is probably as close as you get to making that natural and, and an apposite fit. I don't know. Also because it's a children's film, so it looking almost yeah. like a children's pop-up book kind of works. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that about Scorsese and the idea that he's told, well, you can't do this with 3D or else it'll look cheap. And it's kind of like, no, 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 I want to make I want to make it look like House of Wax. Yeah. You know, I want to make it look like that sort of thing. Because I think that, you know, I think we talked about in Shutter Island. Like, one of the things that I adore about Scorsese is that he takes his B-movies entirely seriously. So I can entirely believe that his big inspiration for this wasn't what James Cameron was doing over in Avatar. It's like, no, no, no. I want to do the Vincent Price House of Wax. That's what I'm going for. And kind of just committing to it. Um, and kind of like leaning into the gimmick of it. There's a really good article I was reading today, actually. Uh, it's on the Tom- Bordwell and Thompson's uh, Oh, Observations on Film Art. Yes. Yeah. And he wrote about, uh, I think it's Scorsese's birthday present to George Melier is the article. As Kristen Thompson wrote it, and she was talking about their experience of seeing it. They saw it in 2D and in 3D when it came out. And it, 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 it goes into a lot and links a lot of articles about the technical aspects of it and all the rest of it. And it, like it's quite an in-depth and long article, but it gets into the idea that a lot of the reviews of the time kind of said that Scorsese was basically bringing Melier out of obscurity, which is not true because he's been, you know, being reclaimed since the twenties and onwards. Uh, just things like that, and it's a you know about the whole idea of film history and even reviewers looking at film history and all the rest of it. But it, it's well worth reading about the technical aspects and the kind of the cinematic aspects and seeing it in the cinema, be it two D, three D, etc. It's really well worth it we're putting in the show notes I was reckoning. Oh, sorry. And Andrew, I'd, sorry. I'd I'd feel very uncomfortable if I if if I were George Malier and this was my kind of birthday present. The <laughs> the whole thing with Michael. He won't, he won't have to worry about it. He's no, no. <laughs> no, but but like the the he Michael Stuhlberg is such an obsequious toady 
in, in the, and, and I know like every toady is obsequious, so it's like redundant to say that. But but it it it, it I'll 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 just say that to to kind of underline it. it the it's it's so <laughs> reverential, and it it's like you you've made a huge mistake letting this person into your house because um like it, it, he has your posters all over his bedroom he he is he is he's crazy for george melier he, <laughs> like the, the this this there's no longer being hot for melier like, no but there there there's something kind of um just um sickly about about his kind of obsession um, I, I, and, I didn't and, see this now i say i i i, I think <laughs> i think this is this he is plays it so, so um kind of flatteringly <laughs> and it's like oh i um we shouldn't be here and we should leave but you're so it's it's it's, you know that he's only saying that to Mama John to get to Papa George, right? I know, but it just made me sick. I was like, this man has no dignity um, <laughs> whatsoever. You know, that it is, I, I found, like, that was the thing I kept coming back to in my mind. It's just like that disgusting man. <laughs> and it's it like... The just the reverence he showed for is like, uh, is a whole sort of thing. It's like I don't think you understand. This guy used to make movies, and kind of you know putting it on. It's like you you people are are beautiful and wonderful and excellent, and and we owe you such a debt. And it's it's too much. It's. It's just. Um, I, I do love, by the way, the little gatekeeping. Me. He's in. He's literally introduced gatekeeping. It's like you're interested in Melier. It's allowed, <laughs> is it? Um, I do kind of want to see what Andrew suggested now, which is like the King of Comedy version yeah. of this, where like basically yeah. Michael Stuhlbarg's character kidnaps Ben Kingsley as George Melier. Pretty much, and because, like, what's going to be enough? Is he going to be? <laughs> is he uh, like after this kind of encounter? Is he going to be like, okay, I got to meet George Melier. I'll just quietly walk away now. He's at the after party, looking very happy. And tell the story. Yeah, but that's just the beginning. You know, we'll never um, get a sequel, so we'll never I know. I was terrified by like his kind of uh, just. I, I do. This is the first I've read it is of anyone. This is this is a new one. <laughs> yeah. this, is, this is actually I a really great it. take. I actually it really is. love yeah. this take. Like it's, it's <laughs> but yeah. I quite like Stolberg. Don't you think part of the reason this is such a generally I like him. But don't you think this <laughs> part of the reason this is a nice Martin Scorsese film is that there are some actors here who are great. They're not necessarily the kind of people you'd expect to see in a Martin Scorsese film. So on the well, I think actually what's interesting is that like watching Hugo, this really feels like and it's kind of interesting that we talk about like Scorsese's twenty tens work mm. and his like twenty first century work. 
Like, Hugo feels like it's like the Irishman, but for Martin Scorsese's 21st century output. It's like a bunch of actors that he's worked with before on kind of films since 2020, since 2000, who aren't Leonardo DiCaprio. So you have like Jude Law, who he worked with on The Aviator. You have uh, Emily Mortimer. Yeah, yeah, Ray Winston from The Departed. Crucially, not Jack Nicholson from The Departed, but Ray Winston from The Departed. Did Ray Winston Uh, have some like deleted scenes or something? It was bizarre to me that, like, Ray Winston turns up, it's like, in one scene and and then... And drowns in the Seine. Uh, But but even like, like, like... there's no kind of, like, um, him, you know, leaving and anybody thinking, kind of, I wonder where Ray is. He's just just there and then he's not there for Mm. the entire movie. We all assume he's behind the walls, scuttling around the place. Yeah. Um, yeah, but but even even like along those lines, you have the involvement of people like, for example, uh, Michael Pitt uh, from Boardwalk mm-hmm. Empire has a small cameo as Lumiere. Michael Stuhlbarg, who worked with him on Kita to Reserva and also on Boardwalk Empire, is there in a small role. And of course, the most crucial of returning cameos, the French donuts from The Departed, also <laughs> right? make a welcome okay. return. Yeah. Um, but no. No, it, it does really, though. It does feel like Scorsese's doing this kind of weird celebration of the movies yeah, that he's but... made since Gangs of oh, New was... Oh, Emily Mortimer. Yeah, Emily well, Mortimer from, from Shutter Island. From Shutter Island. And Ben yeah. Kingsley from Shutter Island as well. Yeah, I think yeah. what I was mainly thinking of then is, on, on the DVD, Christopher Lee, there's a very deferential making of where they all talk about how great Martin Scorsese is. And Christopher Lee says something like, his career wouldn't have been complete until he worked with Martin Scorsese. And I was trying to think where you would place Christopher Lee... In another of Martin Scorsese's films, I think that maybe Shutter Island is the, is the best match. I'd say Shutter Island, yeah, Max von Sydow for all yeah. 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 the Apart from that, he didn't sure. get enough to do here, I think. Mm. Yeah, like, no, he's just really, there to, have, have, to sell books. He's quite lovely in it, though, isn't he? Like, he, they, he is quite lovely, but quite small, but he's lovely. Like, yeah, I'd say he can he can do he so much with like just just a little bit more and like yeah like things like. In, in Gremlins too, he has a very small role, but so kind of uh, memorable. Um, oh, yeah, and, Gremlins yeah. 2 was the best sequel ever made, so I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> it's a magnificent um, film. What I will say before, about Christopher Lee before I move off, like, first of all, I think Christopher Lee works there because he's another piece of cinematic history at this point, because he's been yeah. around since the 50s. And it, yeah, like, it almost feels like Scorsese's checking that one off the bucket list. Yeah, it's that's valid, it. Valedictory, like, it's almost like a lap. That's it, yeah, because he's he's won the Best Picture, Best Director Oscar yeah. now. So it's like, what haven't I done? Work with Christopher Lee. But also even the fact that, as you point out, it's a very un-Christopher Lee role in that, like, even when Christopher Lee was in his late career doing stuff like the new Star Wars movies with George Lucas or doing uh, things like, for example, the Lord of the Rings movies with Peter Jackson, he was still the villain. He was still the presence that was ominous and uncanny yeah. and kind of made people nervous. So it's kind of like... You know the way we talked about how Hugo is odd because it's like the children's film from the man famous for making movies where Joe Pesci gets beaten to death with <laughs> yeah. a baseball bat. Like Christopher Lee's cameo here is like he's an adorable, lovely old man who is pleasant to children and provides vital exposition about. And I love the line here, which is, again, how can you tell this is a Martin Scorsese children's film? Because it includes the line, the Film Academy Library. <laughs> yes, the Film Academy Library. You'll find all you need to know. (laughs) You'll find all you need to know about movies there. And it's like, thank you. That's where we're spending the next 20 minutes of this movie, it seems. 
Um, but I kind of yeah. love that like Lee gets that little moment, which like well gets that kind of role where it's like he's allowed to be the lovable kind old man. Yeah. Um, well, on on the actors then, what did you guys think of Sasha Baron Cohen? Because I've read I've read the the Brian Selznick book of Hugo, and I think one of the big changes is that the station inspector's role is enhanced considerably for the film, and it seems to me like quite a bit of that may have been improved by Baron Cohen, but. I don't know. Is it a bit indulgent? Is it a bit kind of unconvincing? I kind of went back and forth on it as I watched the film. I liked him in it, and and I can tell you, this is like, this is only a little bit of time after watching the, yeah. the, the Trial of Chicago 7, which I hated him in. Um, so I'm a bit on the fence about him in general. Uh, I think the part's particularly well suited to him. Mm. Um, and I think it works pretty well, I have to say. I like him in it. I, I like, he can do the comedy stuff Stand on his head, but even the other stuff, the kind of the, the you know the the war stuff that's inferred and the the kind of the emotional stuff. Romance, and, I think yeah. he, I think he can do it. I think I think he needs a strong enough director, and I think he gets that here. Yeah, um, I and I think he works. I wasn't I wasn't kind of enjoying it as much until it came to that moment of pathos, which I thought um, was done really really well. I would agree. Uh, the moment with the flowers, is it? Yeah, yeah, where where he he kind of mentions that like this happened. He is he kind of delivers it very kind of briefly. Kind of and he like, walks away. And, good day. Yeah, it's like good day. Yeah. Yeah. I was wounded in Versailles, and I have not recovered. Good day. Yeah, um, or, or that that he 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 will not recover. Yeah. Um. Which which is um. Yeah, I found that very affecting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think he sold it. I think he sold it pretty well. Yeah. Um, just to bring up what Carl said there, yes, a lot of that actually did come from Baron Cohen. And this is interesting because I find it like reading the interviews and watching the press coverage, it surprises me that perhaps it's because Scorsese hasn't made that many movies since this, but that he hasn't like found a way to work Cohen into his kind of like repertoire company of actors because it seems like the two of them actually genuinely yeah. clicked in that it was yeah. Cohen who suggested Cohen suggested the backstory um, that he have, you know, the, the war wound, but also the fact that he was himself an orphan in order to explain this. Yes. Um, he talked about how like he would improvise on set and Scorsese would love it. So things like, for example, when he takes the phone call, being in the bath with the dog was his idea which is great. By the way, I absolutely love that Scorsese like goes straight to cute dog humor here where you have like reaction shots from the Doberman. Yeah. Again, that's, that's the thing where like, like we're talking about like Scorsese's use of 3d where there's like no snobbery about it. It's like, you're making a children's film. Yeah. There will be a cute dog reaction shot at several points. Um, Cohen, the, I think um, grumpy uh, cat's face was, 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 was the cat called Christian Rossetti? <laughs> uh, or Christina Rossetti. Uh, like no. Um, but like just in terms of Cohen, he also suggested, and apparently it was the moment himself and Scorsese clicked, was the moment with the train where his his leg gets yeah. hooked. Yeah. Um, he suggested that, and apparently Scorsese latched onto it because it looked like a bit of silent comedy. Yes, of course. And that is very much Scorsese's back. Such a farce yeah. as well for that kind of time. Yeah. I think also yeah. as well. So I think the he gets hit in the groin with yeah. with suitcases as well, which is another we're making that? a children's film. Yeah, we're making a children's film. Let's not be snobbish about it. Kind of. I moment. do like the fact that they have the the leg brace as as part of the kind of overreaching technology of the piece. It fits nicely with the you know mm. the clockwork thing. Things help. Yeah. Make yeah. things better. This is mending. Um, very quickly just before we move on from Cohen um, and this is one of the things that this is why I'm surprised Scorsese hasn't worked with him since is that like Cohen has actually managed to rope Scorsese into 
various things after this, which is fascinating. So like he managed to get Scorsese to do PR for The Dictator with him, where he did a little skit with Scorsese and got Scorsese to admit that it was better than Raging Bull. <laughs> um, at which point, after the after the skit was over, Scorsese's like, you promised you'd let me go. At which point, Baron Cohen said, you also promised me that Hugo would be under two hours, uh, which <laughs> I kind of admire. Um, but yeah, no, it, it, uh, let's talk about the technology thing, because you do, you do kind of mention this. The technology is kind of a theme within the film itself that Jay kind of alluded to there. This idea of kind of clockworks and mechanics. I do love, by the way, that Hugo says machines never come with any extra parts. They always come with the exact amount they need because apparently Hugo's never assembled an Ikea couch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but like generally speaking, I love that kind of metaphor of everything Every having its place. Yeah. Well, the, 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 that's the thing I thought most interesting about the movie because they, they, that, that, that's the sense to which it, it, it seems like a sort of um, look back at a way of seeing the world that is more traditional that we've kind of lost in the 20th century or in the 19th century even the 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 idea of kind of you know existential existentialism kind of replacing a more sort of teleological view of the world where where you know where 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 there is a god and everything is kind of designed and the the idea of the way the way we the way we think about the universe often being informed by the kind of whatever is the the height of technology at that time so we 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 we're, um thinking of the universe or people's minds working like uh clockwork yeah. Whereas yeah. It, and now we think of it more like computers um and kind of so on but also the 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 i guess the shift from the kind of Newtonian view of the world to to um, quantum theory, kind of like in the early half of in the first half of the twentieth century. I, f I felt like the movie was making interesting kind of overtures to those sorts of themes, and the refrain of him saying like, um, um, "It must, it must, it it." It must play a part. There must be something, some something missing. Um, that that's speaking to the idea that we're all kind of God's children, mm. I guess, and all kind of have have this part to play, and being um, disappointed when when the universe does, some, sometimes doesn't seem like that, and being confronted with this very sort of plausible um, possibility that that's not the way the world works at all. And that, that the, the things like World War One, kind of, uh, and the twentieth century generally, kind of like philosophically and technologically, yeah. have taught us that the world is not the way we 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 had thought of it. It doesn't work, um, and the the way the way we thought it did, it can't be fixed the way the way we thought and it I, could. I think this is right pitched in that regard because you're what a decade, not even a decade away from uh, World War Two. Uh, the obliteration right. of that thinking really well particularly in paris of, yeah of, yeah uh, yeah particularly in paris exactly um i think yeah i think there there is a kind of almost an, an innocence within um that even the paris that there in the film is so romantic and cinematic and beautiful and snowy and ripe with possibilities for everyone like even orphans <laughs> 
There, there is some bad Scorsese green screen though. Good, but maybe, maybe that works better in a in a kids movie because it feels almost almost like a, a, some middle ground between it being an animated um, yeah, uh, picture. Yeah, I mean, there's also some stop motion, like that that wonderful sequence where he fixes the the mouse for Melier yeah, yeah. at the storefront, that's a lovely, and yeah. that's it's, yeah, and it's done again using old practical stop motion effects as well, uh, which I, I find actually quite adorable. But to bring it back to what Andrew said, there, I think I think what's interesting about Hugo is that you have like the clockwork metaphor um, that runs throughout the film. One of Scorsese's big additions to the movie based on the original book is the second nightmare that Hugo has where he wakes up and he's become an automaton. Yeah. He kind of tears his shirt off and he realizes that he's mechanical mm-hmm. and made of metal. And so I think that there is an interesting tension there. Like, I think that there's an interesting kind of like recurring metaphor. Yeah. And it's a metaphor that because it's a Scorsese movie, you could arguably tie back to film, which is this idea that you you have to find your way of fitting in, basically. It's like, the world isn't designed perfectly, but instead you have to fit in. You have to figure out how the pieces go together. Um, And maybe it's not that there are spare parts, it's that if you're smart, you can figure out how to use all the parts in such a way that they fit together and make sense. That's that's what I took away from the film on this viewing, really, is that it's very concerned with things working, isn't it? you know, things working and people working, you know, there's Hugo's obsession with the automaton. I really like the automaton. I think there's a link between Hugo and the other characters, I think is effective and generating some fear and unease, like you say in the dream sequence, I think it's very good too. Um, but also just the train station as a hive of activity, you know, the shops, the clocks, I think doesn't the station inspector say at one point, we're here to either get on trains or get off them or work in different shops. Is that clear? Yeah, let's remember why we're here. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I believe that was ad-libbed by Baron Cohen, you know, and so I, I kind of like the uh, preoccupation with work and purpose. I think it worked well, you know, Isabel finding her purpose at the end when she starts to write the book of the story we've just witnessed. And I think it tied together nicely. That, that was an addition from the, uh, that was different from the book. I think in the book, Hugo, you discover has narrated the story. Uh, Isabel's role is nicer in the film, I think. There's also something interesting in like the the like say for example the the automaton and the illustration that it draws and the fact that and again this is one of the things where yeah. it's a metaphor for cinema because of course it is but the idea that this automaton produces a picture of the moon with a rocket in its eye from Melier's journey to the moon um and that means different things to different people it's the same object it's the same piece of a machine it's physically the same you know, construction of lines on a page in a particular sequence and connected to one another. But when somebody looks at it, it becomes something else entirely. So when Hugo says, I know it's silly, but it's I think it's going to be a message from my father. And then it is related because it's the movie that his father saw and told him about. That means one thing to him, but the same piece of paper to Georges Millet means something entirely different as a memory of kind of his experience making movies. And I think that that kind of gets at this, you know... it's not that it conflicts with it, but it adds nuance to this idea of everything fitting together like clockwork. This yeah. idea that not everything has a perfect place, but everything has a place. And if you look at it differently, 
they fit together differently based on who's observing them. And again, that, that you know, the idea of looking being important. Carl mentioned that the sequence before the film title where he runs up to the clock tower and looks out over kind of like Paris, that's Scorsese as a child looking out from his window over the neighborhood. It's the shot from Kundan where the Dalai Lama looks through his telescope and surveys the landscape. It's Henry Hill looking out his window and seeing the gangsters across the street. It's Scorsese... Yeah being fascinated by the idea of looking and i love the idea that that metaphor for automatons cogs and clockworks becomes more complex as andrew's quite right as we reach the 20th century and realize that everything has an objectively determined purpose but if you look at them in the right way or if you examine them from a different perspective maybe you can make the pieces fit in a way that makes sense. I, I actually found that really heartening. And that's something I think as I got older, I think when I was younger, I found it uh, quite cheesy. I found the ending where everybody fits together. It's one of those great, like again, Scorsese making a family film. It's like, we're not going to pull it. We're not going to like compromise. <laughs> we're not going to pretend it's more artsy yeah. than it is. It's like super happy fun ending where everybody pairs off, which is exactly what you expect in a movie like this. But it, it kind of worked for me because it, like when I got older, I feel I like it more now than I did watching it for the first time because it kind of feels like I buy into that romance of it of like these people are kind of strange and odd and weird, but they just happen to find the other people who fit them. And or it, and they just ha- ties into the, the older style of cinema as well. I mean, how many, if you've watched a lot of older kind of particularly short films and back, back in the kind of silent era and beyond cinema, the, the idea of you know somebody bringing a dog that's biting at you, another dog to pair the dog off so you can get related. It's very, <laughs> that's very kind of almost Lauren and Hardy levels of kind of ingeniousness. Logic, you know, yes, and, of like logic that makes the world and, and, make and sense. I like that, and I like that that that's like a little vignette in of itself. That's not necessarily important to the overall scheme of things, and yet it dovetails nicely within, particularly in the first half. Right, this it's like a little mini arc throughout, which I really, really like. Plus, as Richard Griffiths and. Um, Oh, what's her name? Uh, yeah, the actress, I can't think of her name. Frances Delatel. Anyways, but Andrew, I think, so. you kind of approached the point, so I think maybe this is something that you were getting at that you weren't entirely satisfied with how it resolved, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, I felt like they didn't really, as a, as a member of the audience, I didn't really feel convinced. I felt like they had sort of decided to believe in a, in a very sort of um, fragile um, lie, kind of by the end, like they did, the, the, you know, that 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 there, there, I don't think there was very much that was going to that that brought them together, or that certainly was going to keep them together. But I guess it, well, that's like, a different in, thing. In, I think, though, in the world of the movie, where we we're, we're we have to kind of believe that like the, this is you know the 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 start of a of a, of a great but but i i i feel it's I not feel necessarily like the case though i don't think i think there is a kind of tension within that the future is not certain in that way well i mean it, it's worth noting that like when hugo follow, follows Melier home he follows him through a gigantic gothic graveyard, graveyard. with looming <laughs> figures um i think like 
Yeah. That's the thing that I think yeah. where I'm older um, and kind of, again, Scorsese's older, that maybe that's an aspect of the film that's aged or that I've grown into is the weird sense that like watching it as a kid, I was like, yeah, this is super happy fun time and maybe a little bit generic. I say as a kid, I was like 22 <laughs> years old, but it's like, um, you know, now I watch it and I'm like, actually, there's something vaguely melancholy. Jay mentioned, you know, this is what, less nine years before the Second World War. The walking through the graveyard, the repeated emphasis throughout on the fact that Melier is much, much older than he was when he was making these movies and probably doesn't have that much of his life left in him. Um, and like the fact that Christopher Lee, who who made this movie and at the time was 80, um, is now passed away. Yeah. Um, like th- there's an impermanence to it that I think. And and obviously the fact that it deals with like the loss of film and the idea that like you had this art that was thriving and hugely popular and successful and all of it was kind of washed away in art where only one of those films survived. Now we managed to restore some others, but there's still, you know, yeah. plenty of them out there. Like how many, what percentage of silent films are lost? Yeah, yeah. And again, like most, I think. I yeah. I think to be fair, Scorsese doesn't leaden the movie with it. Like if you're, and again, this is the weird thing where it's like, it's kind of a kid's movie, but it's also very much a Scorsese movie where you can tell that Scorsese's like, look, I'm going to make concessions to kids. I'm going to have a cute dog reaction shot because kids <laughs> love that. Or, you know, yeah. I'm going to use 3D like in the kind of like cheesiest way possible because kids will love that. I'm going to give a super happy fun ending because kids will love that. But we're also going to spend 20 minutes in a library because kids will also love that. But I find it int- <laughs> yeah. I think there is an aspect there where Scorsese has softened the edges of the movie so that, like, I think kids watching it won't pick up on that stuff. But I think that as somebody older watching it, there's a real profound melancholy. Yeah. That run- that doesn't go away with the happy ending. It's just no, it kind just... of like, it's, it's but, but there, but that, it's, it's a temporary stay. That's a kind of, it's strange for me, though, because I feel like there is something that, that that's, there must be something within Scorsese that wants to resolve that in a more kind of satisfying manner and not not to kind of conclude with that melancholia because they be because i i imagine um Scorsese wants to believe that you know people have this kind of um purpose and role in the world like cogs in 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 the machine but in a more sort of a a, a spiritual um, way yeah that 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 and that that this that this movie kind of you know there he's not um melier is not going to start making movies again <laughs> like yeah at um it's 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 a, yeah it's a, it's a bit kind of yeah, it's strange for me. It it it's kind of like um, um, the only sort of thing we have is to be able to remember it. I guess like don't, that, don't, that that yeah. Don't you think there was as much as there's all this melancholy? It was very well balanced by there's some really joyous stuff in the film. I think you know, like the trip to the cinema that Hugo and Isabel share. I think. One of my favourite sequences is the montage of films where we see the clips from Chaplin and Keaton and, and so on and so forth. Uh, the recreation of the train arriving at the station, that screening. The flashback to Melies at work on the set is really nice. 
um in the giant greenhouse yeah, like with lovely. the glass it's it's absolutely and like they built all of those sets like by the way we've been singling out uh scorsese's collaborators as we've been going yeah. i think we've given thelma schumacher a kind of a lot of shout outs as well um but like obviously the kind of like the auteur idea of cinema we tend to focus on the director but scorsese here the production design by dante ferretti is outstanding it is it the really is film looks absolutely gorgeous the design is and incredible it, I think yeah. that's probably the, the, one of the best things about this movie is like full stop. Yeah, he um, talks about how like everything in Melier's kind of like set he built apart from the pencil that he used mm-hmm. to draw it, um, and it, it's gorgeous. Like you could you can tell that Scorsese loves this stuff as well, even though it and like because that's the thing where I'm wondering if you're watching it with a child because I imagine that's the point where you know the adult is sitting up in the room going, "This is amazing," yeah. and the you know. 10 year old 14 year old kid is like well what, what's what's this i was watching a fun <laughs> yeah. movie about an orphan in a rail state in a railway station yeah but to to that point and the kind of like how kids will react to this and to kind of go um to speak as well i guess to Car- carl's point about the joy in this movie i think it's something for me anyway that undermines the sort of joyous um elements of this movie and the kind of um whimsy um yeah. I, I i guess in it is i feel like ace butterfield is a real um issue for this movie it, 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 he i don't i, I it, it feels like he makes things less fun than they ought to be <laughs> I no. mean, he's a poor orphan. He's a shovel. Exactly. Giant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, the, like, there's no, there's no sense of him, of him. Like, he just seems like a desperately sad, lonely kind of. Um, but he is maladjusted. Kind of, oh yeah, completely. But there, there, there isn't, there isn't the kind of um, dynam- dynamism to him as a character no. where I feel like in in a kids movie like this you want you yes you want to get across that like there there you want to feel life is tough and hard but you also want to feel kind of a sense of like adventure and mystery yes but andrew's running around which you don't get at all andrew we we pointed out earlier on though i mean scorsese will make any film and in any genre and he'll he it's scorsese that undermines the whimsy because that's what he does. Like he he'll should, take it yeah. and stick he it out. That's what he does. Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> 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 put, put him in a little orphan wig. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. kind of use forced perspective. It's just like such a bummer throughout. Like the, I like the, him in it. I have to say, I, 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 I actually really I like him. Yeah. He's a very good fit as well physically. When you look at the drawings in the original book, he's a very good match for the character on the page. I think. Um, oh. I, I thought he was fine. The only I had a few issues with Chloe Grace Moretz. She had a couple of line readings that kind of struck a struck a kind of a discordant note with me. I think when she says, "Don't you like books?" It just kind of I don't know. <laughs> but that Butterfield, I thought was good. I feel like I felt sorry for Chloe Grace Moretz because it's kind of a, it's a it it felt like a bit of a boring role to me. Like the to be the, the bookish nerdy one, yeah, um, the kind of like I like books and and, and that is my character and, and big words, kind of and, and like adventure as well, apparently. Yes, yeah, I guess, yeah, but it, yeah, it felt like she was more on board with like these kind of you know <laughs> oh, she was, was like, like she's that, the foil, that, yeah, exactly. That that yeah. that was a great adventure, 
but there's no joy in his eyes. <laughs> it's like my dad burnt alive. He seen um, a lot of fairness. Give the kid a break for crazy. My uncle's lying in the sun face down, and that's yeah. probably the best thing that's happened to me or him in a long while. Um, <laughs> like, okay, well, just to bring it back to what Andrew said there, because I think I, this is what I find genuinely like. I love this about Hugo, and I get that you know it's it's a sticky. Like I understand why Andrew doesn't, but it's like Hugo to me watching it. And we talked about, I think we talked about, and this is kind of an interesting point in comparison, because we talked, before we did the Summer of Scorsese, we discussed Catch Me If You Can, which is the only Steven Spielberg film from the 21st century in the 250. Mm. Um, And we talked about how that felt a little bit like Steven Spielberg doing a Martin Scorsese film in his way. In that it's a movie that's about capitalism, about people who are lost and disoriented, trying to find their way while dealing with nostalgia and stuff like that. So it kind of has these Scorsese-esque themes, but it's filtered through a Spielbergian lens. And what I love about Hugo is Hugo feels almost like somebody said, Marty, make a Spielberg film. Because you have like that wonderful sequence at the start where Asa Butterfield's kind of running through the station and the camera's kind of chasing him in this long wonder. And it almost feels like those kind of shots that I associate with Spielberg from like E.T. the Extraterrestrial. It's like we're following the adorable child protagonist through this magical, whimsical world with all these little details that are going to distract. They're so complicated and so complex because he's a kid in adult's world. And I love that like despite those trappings despite that whimsy despite that kind of sense of like looking at the world through a child's eyes you come and you focus on Asa Butterfield and he is a Scorsese lead through and through oh he is yeah pretty much so he has seen a lot yeah he's because because, because, yeah in in Spielberg movies like, like in Catch Me If You Can you get the pathos and the loneliness of um um Leonardo DiCaprio's character. Yeah, yeah, uh, of of Frank, um, but mostly it's 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 kind it's of fun. Uh, yeah, it's fun. Whereas, like in 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 this movie, it could have been mostly about how um, kind of fun. how much of a wreck this child is, but with 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 some sense that uh, of 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 him having a sense of, of fun in spite of that. But I, I don't think, I don't, for me anyway, I didn't get it. I, we absolutely I, don't get it. He doesn't. Yeah. I mean, but I think this speaks as well to what you were talking about earlier, Andrew, about the kind of the ending and the kind of, the, the almost like how I see it, the, the, the temporary victory, I guess, that whilst he doesn't, he enjoys it and he's sitting there and he's happy, he's not, they're not happy in the sense of, this is a forever freeze frame uh, 1980s kids comedy kind of thing. Oh no, Hugo this, probably this is, died in the Second World yeah, War as a teenager. Consumption like, or yeah. TB are murdered on the on the battlefield. Yeah, yeah. I, I I get the impression that like um, he probably broke something, and then probably he was beaten by an adult who then had a heart attack while beating him. Um, so some something along those lines. They'll be like consistent with the the Scorsese. Okay. I don't. Kind of I don't vibe. think it's quite. I don't think it's quite that bleak. To be fair, <laughs> like I I do like that's the that's the central tension of Hugo for me is the idea that it's 
almost it, like it's as close as Scorsese can bring himself to. And again, this yeah. is the thing because because like Scorsese's talked about how. And, like, people who know Scorsese have talked about how, like, one of his driving ambitions, and again, this will probably be a nice segue into talking about, like, Ben Kingsley and George Melier and how he's presented here. But one of the driving forces for Scorsese as a filmmaker is, I want to be remembered, I want to be loved, I want to be somebody who's seen as being, like, a, f- a filmmaker who makes films that people like, and not just, like, film critics and film buffs, general audiences as well. I want to be as loved as my buddies George Lucas, Francis Ford Coppola, and Steven Spielberg. And it's that thing that Jay mentioned where there's almost this kind of like comedic self-sabotage where like every time he gets a chance to do a movie like one of those guys for a mass audience, he literally cannot stop himself. So so what what are the examples of self-sabotage then? Which films are you talking about? Well, okay, when I say self-sabotage, I don't actually mean, I mean like, in a very Scorsese way. way. So like Gangs of New York, which is this big epic historical with a huge budget that's going to, you know, that was going to open, I think it opened opposite Catch Me If You Can, for example. It's got this kind of fantastic cast. It's got a young heartthrob, Leonardo DiCaprio in it. It's got Daniel Day-Lewis, who's generally regarded as one of the great actors of his generation. And it's, you know, this movie that ends up being this brutal evisceration of the American dream that I think Andrew pointed out, you feel like you might catch cholera from watching it. <laughs> and I say that loving the movie to death. Yeah, I like um, it too. But it, it, it very much, like, if Scorsese's wanting to make a populist movie, that's not what a populist movie looks like. And it's, it's Shutter Island. Like, it's a fair piece of love. Like, yeah, it's like, a, it, it should be a good genre piece that, uh, you know, knock it out of the park, send people home, having a good night in the cinema. But it wallows in death. Like, I mean, it wallows in it. But the thing with Shutter Island is by that stage, like, Scorsese kind of, like, established a pattern and kind of, like, people were going to see a Scorsese movie expecting a Scorsese movie. But even, like, say, New York, New York. Because, like, Mm. if you read, like, you know, if you read Scorsese on Scorsese, if you read Conversations with Scorsese, if you read even Easy Rider's Raging Bulls, one of the most impossible things, like, one of the most unbelievable things in that book is the idea that Scorsese was like, I made Taxi Driver. I got carte blanche at the studio and I wanted to make a movie that people were going to love. So I made an intimate, like 70s style dysfunctional relationship movie about a toxic, abusive relationship involving a candid discussion of abortion at one point in the style of a 1950s MGM musical. Nobody turned out to see it. And I cannot for the life of me understand why. Um, That's the kind of thing when I say like Scorsese in terms of self-sabotaging. And I say that like loving gangs of New York and and that sort of thing. So it's not an insult to him to be clear, but I find, I find that tension fascinating. Yeah, no, I mean, in New York, New York, that that's a film I like, but I find it tricky because De Niro comes off as so manic from the get go, you know? And I think maybe to go back, you're talking about Scorsese and Spielberg, but wasn't Cape Fear originally lined up for Spielberg at one point? And... Yeah, and swapped it for um, Schindler's List. Yeah. Um, and it's like, I could not imagine Spielberg doing Cape Fear. Like, that's well, a the movie family that... would be very different, I think. Yes, and, and the, the <laughs> undertones would be very, very yeah. different as well. Um, but yeah, so to bring us back to, to Hugo, sorry. As, like, I think I like, I can see Andrew's problem with Hugo himself in that, like, being this, like, 
arguably a hollow shell of a young male kind of protagonist in a runaway well, adventure. I think it's a great movie for kids with post-traumatic stress. <laughs> um, just, to, just to eliminate any kind of sense that they're ever going to get over it. So we should, um, it's, it's, stock should rise in the next decade, so. Yeah. <laughs> uh. But yeah, like there's a wonderful line here from like when they asked like how Scorsese paid Hugo. Um, there's an observation here from the writer covering like one of the press screenings. And he's like, I believe that Scorsese consciously or subconsciously relates to the film's two central characters. Both Aza Butterfield's lonely, somewhat sickly looking, but perpetually wide eyed young boy. Yeah. Um, but who sounds a lot like Scorsese as a kid. And also Sir Ben Kingsley's long underappreciated old master who finally gets his due during the third act of his life. So what do we think of like Ben Kingsley in the film? And what do we think of the film's portrayal of George Melier? Yeah, I like it. I, li- I-, I like Kingsley as an actor when he's not going big Kingsley. Uh, <laughs> and even when sexy he does beast. do big Kingsley occasionally, Sexy Beast is fantastic. But yeah. there's a subdued kind of quality to him here that I think really, really adds to the film. Um, and it's kind of, there's, and again, it just speaks to, the, again, it's a kid's film. There's a haunted kind of um, demeanor to him constantly. Like, it looks like he's weighed down by everything, regret, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think Kingsley plays it terrifically. Um, I, again, it, this, 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 it's the dive into the second half of the film, which is a very different beast than the first half. That I think is where you lose the kids anyway, straight off the bat. But yeah, but I do think even when the, I think the flashback stuff is done really well, and Kingsley's extremely sprightly, actually, I have to say, in the, the kind of flashback to the when uh, Melia is making the films where he's talking about them. And, if you've ever wondered where your dreams come from, look around. This is where they're made. Yeah, and that's yeah. the moment where Michael... St- but, uh, and, he, and he has that wide-eyed nights. Where Michael Stuhlbarg <laughs> imprints on him, and it's like, one day I will like be close to you again, my love. And, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, Michael Stuhlbarg, Daniel Partridge fan. Then you'll never be able to escape me. Uh, <laughs> Kind of waiting for the Tony Scott version. Yeah, the Tony Scott version starring Robert De Niro and yeah. Wesley Snipes. I love um, the fan, by the way. <laughs> but but yes, yeah, so what about yourself, Carl? Like as somebody who's talked a lot about old movies, and like as somebody who's got a like podcast remit, particularly on the Movie Palace, is classic cinema. What did you make of, of Melier here and the use of Melier here? Yeah, I haven't actually seen a great deal of George Melier's films, to be honest. I've seen The Trip to the Moon quite a, you know a few times. I saw that um, maybe ten or fifteen years ago, and then I've seen I think there's one. Um, a Kingdom of Fairy Tales is more recently. I think Kingsley's very good in the role. I agree with Jay. I think he's very good at the sort of subdued older man. And I think haunted's a good word. And the sort of more, the younger, oh, well, and the, later on when he is the magician figure, I think he's good in that in that role too. Um, I think it's a nice portrayal of Melia. I've read that it's kind of simplified, you know, this idea of him as the magician. I think that some of the context of the era has been kind of stripped out is what I've heard. I think there's a movement called the incoherent movement, which were these kind of iconoclasts and his work apparently is kind of situated in that kind of realm. Um, what we get here is nice. You know, I think there's an appealing physicality to his brand of magic, isn't there? And I think the film conveys it very well with the sets and the backdrops and the fish tanks and all the trickery that's done with a camera. 
you know, I, I believe from what I read, and again, I haven't seen like massive amounts of his films. I think Melies also did he did some films we'd now call docudramas, you know, about contemporary affairs as well. So we, I like the hand-me-down version we get, though. I can't quibble with it too much because it's very charming. I think it is, and I think I think there's something interesting in the sense that again, this is like a Scorsese character because he's introduced as this deeply unpleasant bully. Like his treatment of Hugo in the opening act of the film is like watching it as a, you know, again, I say as a 21 year old man when I last saw it, but watching it as a younger person, it was like, he's very deeply unpleasant to Hugo. He grabs his wrist, he calls him a thief, he steals his notebook and burns it. And there's kind of a real sense of, I quite admire that the film goes there with the character and then kind of mellows and kind of humanizes him. And becomes this study of kind of like shame and trauma and kind of guilt and that it manages to kind of humanize him without, Mm. again, like for for a film that's, you know, nominally aimed at children, he's a surprisingly rich, complex and nuanced character. And I I find, I find that remarkable. I I, I really like that Hugo doesn't compromise in, in that sense. Um, and again, like this is worth noting again, this is around the time that, you know, Pixar were kind of truly emerging with, you know, kind of like Inside Out and stuff like that later on in the decade, that they were kind of doing this films for children that didn't talk down to children. But I kind of, I admire the, the nuance of the characterization of Melier here. And, I think it's, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. And don't you think it's reflected quite nicely? Because I think the thing people say about his films is, you know, people talk about the cinema of attractions, films that show you things. And it's mainly about these uh, arresting images, you know. And obviously, narrative cinema developed properly later, um, a few years afterwards. And then is Hugo kind of the flip side of that in that it's also highly pleasurable visually? And I'm not just talking about the 3D, but like things like that tracking shot at the beginning of the film through the station, whether you watch it in 3D or not. You know, I think they serve the narrative though, don't they? So it kind of, I'm not, I'm not sure. Again, I'm not a Melier's expert, so I don't know to what extent the cinema of attractions label is fair because I know some people have said actually the stories are more interesting than that allows for um but i think with this film scorsese and we've talked about this before he always finds a visual style that's suitable and it's interesting and although it's interesting it's not off-putting or distracting it works with the story i think yeah i mean it's not as heavily stylized as the artist to pick the other example from the year in question and the irony is i think that one of the points that was made by critics of the artist is that like the artist actually feels like somebody's rough memory of silent movies it feels more like the parody of silent movies that you saw in say singing in the rain than it does an actual silent movie for example uh whereas watching hugo they point out that even though it's shot using modern technology and it's shot in color Things like the use of, say, green and turquoise and red, like, again, like The Aviator, evoke the feel and texture of kind of those early color films that you'd be getting around, you know, the the 30s. Uh, But even things like, say, you know, kind of like the comedy, the the slapstick silent comedy, where the kind of, you know, the inspector is being dragged along the ground, for example, or, you know, the, the safe, the reference to safety last in the poster at the climax of the film, where he goes dangling out. There's a sense of, like, Scorsese referencing the films from which he's drawing but not necessarily being as you know upfront or demanding or insisting that you recognize them um as arguably like he is in say like when he references psycho and shutter island or the departed where he'll just like ape the shot you know shot for shot but like in a way that respects them without or sort of acknowledges them without drawing attention to it or without alienating audiences who 
wouldn't necessarily get it because I don't think when I saw the film for the first yeah. time I would have have seen as many silent films as I have now. Um, so I wouldn't have got that it looks and feels a lot like those, or I wouldn't have seen as many of the films from the period uh, that it's emulating or that it's referencing. And I think it's remarkable that he does that without without showing, like I say without showing off, he is absolutely showing off, <laughs> but without pushing away the kind of casual audience or yeah. without drawing attention to it. Yeah, or like a shot like when Isabel, sorry, sorry, sorry Andrew. Sorry. No, I, I, I was kind of maybe pushing against this idea that he manages to do all of this without pushing people away. I think, I, I think it is a very, the, perhaps a remarkably long cruel dark kids movie <laughs> but, it is... but i but i think it suffers as a kids movie for yeah. that I, I i um i i think like in very sort of like traditional kids movies we'll have these characters who start kind of as the gruff kind of like the 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 the, the classic example is in 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 both um the um uh Home Alone and Home Alone 2, the kind of like older um, uh, characters in that, but that you begin thinking kind of like they're they're scary, and but they don't push too much in that direction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they yeah. never burn the child's beloved yeah. book or his sole memory they, of his father. They <laughs> don't take it to a point that you can kind of really get back from, and I feel like the that that's um, um yeah, it, it's it's yeah. kind of difficult for him to then to earn like the affection of of the kind of child audience, you know. I, I sort of feel like the the pool he's fishing in just isn't big enough in the sense that if there's a Venn diagram of people who like a kind of misfits children's adventure on one hand and people who want to sit for a Martin Scorsese um film ex <laughs> film film lecture on the other i think i am in the intersection in that venn diagram for sure but i yeah, think right. that your kind of juvenile audience i think is less likely to be in the right hand column as well as the left you know but maybe um, maybe i'm wrong just very quickly before we wrap up then in terms of the the presentation of george Melier, do we think that there's anything because this is interesting where like so much of scorsese is in there i think that you go you know, you can see him as being a surrogate for Scorsese as a child. I think that the, now that Andrew's discussed it, I can't describe him in any other way. The creepy stalker super fan, Michael, Michael Stuhlbarg character, um, is also very much Scorsese in that it's like, look, I am obsessed with film history. I have a beard and glasses and I am lovable. And I just want to talk to you about how much I he's love a, the he's history. A 19, he's a 1930s film, bro, right? Yeah, that's exactly. Well, yeah, he literally gatekeeps. It's like, oh, you yeah. think you know Melier? I literally wrote the book on Melier. Yeah. You see this over here? That's an authentic Melier costume. I haven't washed his hand since I shook it when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like, you know, you could. I think you can see a bit of Scorsese in that. In that, like that character, he kind of, you know, again, I think Carl mentioned specifically Michael Powell. Um, who he kind of like, he yeah. went to, I think, you know, he discussed how much the Red Shoes has meant to him. He restored a lot of his work. And obviously Powell then married uh, his editor, Thelma Schoenmacher as well. But I think that even if we want to be perhaps a little bit cynical or a little bit, you know, Marty still has a bit of an ego to him as well. Is Marty presenting himself as something close to Melier? In that, is Melier capturing that anxiety that I mentioned that he's talked about, which is like, will my work be remembered? I, I, at this stage, I'd say 
And so like, I'm finally so getting recognition in my later life. Because again, that yeah. sequence where Melier, like with yeah. his white hair, goes up in front of the society and is recognized as an actual artist and filmmaker. That's pretty much Marty in 2006 getting his Oscar from yeah, but his that, film that, that's five years ago at that stage, though. So. Like, what, point. my point is, I, I, I think subconsciously, I think every filmmaker that has a filmmaker in his film <laughs> is that filmmaker. That. Yeah. But I think at this stage, he's Scorsese is... Uh, at that stage in 2011 is in the grandstand honorary every bloody yeah. festival he wants awards and, and and is garlanded sufficiently that i don't find it that way in general i think it's a little bit there but i think that's there in every filmmaker that makes something about particularly older filmmakers and particularly filmmakers from back in the day where there's a kind of there is nostalgia as andrew said earlier there's a kind of this nostalgic kind of kind of trying to drag something up from the past as something some holes and I think Scorsese is sufficiently interested in that and in that era for it not necessarily to be autobiographical in that way because I, I do think like we mentioned that in, it came as a wave and I know Andrew points out that there are always these ways but this is very much a flow of movies about movies and old fashioned movie making this the artist um, Warhorse for example even Super 8 um, My Weekend with Marlon all those sort of movies came out around the same time and the idea that this was around the time that cinema was again going through a decline as it, as it always is that 3D was coming in that people were worried about the future of the medium the possibility of streaming Netflix emerging all that sort of nonsense happening in the background uh, but I do wonder if like because you you look at Scorsese after this and a lot of Scorsese's conversations, you know, stuff like, say, not to drag it up, but the Marvel stuff or the kind of like the question about whether the, the yeah. modern studio model is sustainable. The big argument that he had with Steven Spielberg. Um, and I do wonder if there is an element or a shade of that to it where it's like, you know, I'm wondering about the future of this medium as I get older. What's going to happen next? Is it going to be like Melier? Is there a chance that this place, this world that I built or this world that I've been a part of is not going to be around much longer? It's worth noting, again, this was one of three films that Scorsese had to produce using independent money. He had to do outside the studio system. And the two movies that he would do after that, he had to go to streaming services to get money to make. So I wonder, is there an element of that to it, or is that? I think there might be. I, I think that's probably fair. I think, I think the two thousand and tens onwards has been particularly around. And I'm not putting Scorsese into as an independent filmmaker, but yeah. I think certain, uh, I don't know what you call them, adult films. I guess <laughs> not that kind of adult, but <laughs> uh, films for adults maybe uh, were are being squeezed out even then, and consequently in the next end of soon decade. Yeah. Plus, independent film being squeezed. I think I then seen streaming service taking up the slack in the last few years. I think I don't know if he's being prescient, but I certainly think the wind was blowing sufficiently that you could certainly make that argument. There may well be elements of that, but I think when I go back and look at interviews with Scorsese from the Hugo press tour, I'm kind of struck by his enthusiasm and his effusiveness. Like, so it's funny. I think that's who he is in general, though, I isn't know, he? Yeah. Is he? Well, I mean, it, it's worth noting that like this is this came after doing The Departed, which is a movie that he had a very bad experience on, perhaps. But we're not going to say explicitly because of the actor that he worked with on. Um, and he said, like, I think at one point he said he'd rather drop dead than do press for The Departed. Yeah. And yet he won the Oscar for it. Uh, but even say Shutter Island, where like he's talked like, I think, conversation with Scorsese. He spends half of the conversation with Richard Schickel going, I don't want to talk about Shutter Island. Stop talking about Shutter Island. I can't take any more criticism of Shutter Island. Yeah. So I think that it is interesting that like the press tour for Hugo was so 
as Carl mentioned, so effusive and yeah. so enthusiastic. Well, there was an interview I translated from a French publication. I forget which one it was now, but they made exactly that point, which was that when Shutter Island was brought up, he kind of immediately becomes pensive and doesn't want to talk about it. <laughs> he's withdrawn. And But yeah, when he's talking about Hugo and he's talking about the 3D and he's like, wow, this makes characters so much more accessible for the audience. It's kind of kind of fun. It's charming. Um, that's interesting, the Melier's take though, Darren, but what I've seen him say, and there may well be elements to it that he's not being upfront about, but it always seemed to be him talking about how he identified powerfully with Hugo. I do like the story of him first seeing A Trip to the Moon, though, because he's always got a story about where he first saw these films, and he's got a great recall for that kind of thing. And he talked about seeing it in 1956. It, apparently it was played in front of Around the World in 80 Days, and he said it was fun because it was a big commercial hit, so it meant that you know every movie going in America sat through A Trip to the Moon in 1956. And then, of course, he went on to see the Melies films. I think Jonas Mikas showed them to him in the 1960s and that kind of thing. Um, so I don't know. It's tempting, though, to wonder what other resonances he sees between himself and the older filmmaker. Yeah, nice. Nice take, I think. Nice. All right, so I think that about wraps up, unless there's anything else you want to talk about. Is there anything that we haven't discussed? About I'd like to anyways? just want to mention one thing, actually, and I think it's worth mentioning for the film. Watching it, in a COVID world where cinemas are closed yeah. and uh, and kind of film as a shared medium has kind of to some degree disappeared, makes it extremely poignant, I thought, um, mm. and kind of sad and weird. And I, I, I do think it plays differently this year than even perhaps it would have played last year um, as a film. And I, I found it quite affecting, I'd say, and it kind of stuck up with me. And wasn't really expecting it because I've been happily watching films for the last six months at home, because um, that's what I do. And films as a great coping mechanism, as a great kind of outlet. But seeing it, seeing that kind of loss to a Scorsese film, I, I felt actually kind of, I really kind of found it quite affecting. Because we don't get the full forty X experience. At home. That's true. <laughs> and we don't, Andrew. Not yet. Yeah. Maybe they'll bring Hugo back for that and make its money finally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kind of wondering what the 4DX Hugo experience would be. Will everything smell of like croissants and freshly baked bread? You'd be thrown um, in front of a train. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, I just wanted to defend Isabel a little bit before we go. Because like I said, I think there are a few iffy moments from Moretz. But I, I kind of like the character, you know, because I think that so do I. as much as it's maybe a bit of a less showy role because it's all about books and so on. I like the sense you get that reading is enjoyable for her. I like the vocabulary she uses when she comes out with these words like clandestine that you know she's seen in the book. Um, I think it's a nice moment where she talks about Christina Rossetti and it leads to the station inspector bluffing. You know, you, you get a real sense that reading's a key part of her personality and a part of her self-confidence. And that's different to the book. In, in, in the book, they both um, are fond of movies. So she's been given a, a more distinctive character in the film. And I like it. I like the way the film plays with book imagery as well. You know, the libraries, this kind of hallowed space in a way that appealed to me. But again, I'm, I'm sure, sure it's not what the kids are after, but I quite liked it. I did actually, like, while we're talking about Hugo and Isabella, one of the more interesting, because I've been watching all of Scorsese's movies as we've been going along doing this thing. Watching Hugo this time, I was not prepared for the extent to which the cute little oh they're kids and they're probably yeah. going to like be first boyfriend and girlfriend to one another this is adorable aspect of it also weirdly reminded me of the conversations with harvey Keitel and who's that knocking at my door 
uh, where like again the very Scorsese thing where it's literally like I met this girl that I I'm really into what's the first thing we're gonna talk about cinema let's talk about how great films are um and I kind of like I uh, that was something I kind of adored again it's it's a children's movie but it's a very Scorsese children's movie because that thing that you mentioned Carl where they're both into movies if she's not into movies it means that you can have a sequence where Hugo talks a great detail and length about how wonderful movies are so I kind of I like that a lot, even though I was not prepared for how weird it was to see that reimagined in the context of a lovable children's movie from 2011. <laughs> um, yes. All right, then. So I think that about wraps it up, unless there's anything else anybody wants to talk about. Anything yeah. that we haven't. Did James about. Joyce cameo? Oh, yeah. James <laughs> Joyce cameo? Yeah, well, it's not literally James Joyce, obviously, but uh, <laughs> in the chase through the station at the start, uh, you go to the cafe and I think it's Joyce at Dali. Yeah. Say, but yeah. Look up. Ah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, which I quite That's, enjoy, I have to say. Uh, and a lovely small cameo from Michael Pitt as well, playing Lumiere, who's drinking yes. from a flask. Um, I kind of really like that. Pitt being an actor who apparently was quite difficult to work with at times. So you have to wonder. Yeah. 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 I also really of... like that, we didn't mention, but the uh, that kind of montage from the clockworks to the Paris kind of roundabout to this overview of the city at the start, which is really, oh, yeah. really beautiful. Yeah. What's the... Yeah, and again, like it gets at the thing that Andrew was suggesting, where it's like that transference from everything has a place and the world is completely ordered to everything is just light streaming through the void, um, which I kind of liked. And again, sorry, that makes it sound much more bleak and depressing than it is. It's actually like light is beautiful streaming through the void. But it becomes like, you know, this clear clockwork mechanical process becomes something a lot more abstract. And I kind of like that. I will say... Like, one of the frequent questions on this podcast is, did this movie make Darren cry? There were points in Hugo where I kind of kind of got a bit stuffy. It was, I, uh... I made it sound a little similar. Uh, I I found it quite affecting, particularly yeah. the back half. But I I found it very moving, I have to say. And I, I similarly to previous conversations we've had, Darren, about how uh, particularly certain 21st century films start to creep up the, um, the kind of the, the mm-hmm. list of the rate how you how high you rate Scorsese films. I'd be interested to see where we would be with this in about five, ten years. I I didn't get that emotional impact from the film. Perhaps that's why this is a film I admire without being able yeah. to fully embrace it as one of his greatest yeah. works. How about you, Andrew? That's fair. I can I can, I can see that. I don't think Andrew did either somehow. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. No, did didn't not 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 for me. Did Michael Stolberg not move you? <laughs> <laughs> It's annoying because, because like the, he kind of you know pushed me in the opposite direction to which I, uh, I, I yeah oh, that sort of was was meant to to to, it's just his his sort of saccharine sincerity, uh, <laughs> uh, was yeah was so. By yeah. the way, just letting you know, Miss Melia, you are still super hot like a fox. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, by the way, Helen McCrory is is great. By the way, in a, yeah. in a small yeah. supporting role as as uh, Mama Jean, she is by the, very good. I do love that they have Papa George and Mama Jean, so together they could found a top American pizza chain, like <laughs> Papa Jean's. Yeah. We, won't, uh, anyway. we won't give any free advertising to Papa John. Papa, uh, John. Other pizzas are available. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, as opposed to like the twenty minutes we spent talking about Goodfellas on Goodfellas. That's uh, true. Yeah. Pa- Papa John is a well-known um, 
Well, sorry, can I say he's a little man? <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll, bleep, we'll bleep that and we'll let people figure out what that, what that description was, Andrew. Um, he's a right. piece of meat. <laughs> he's a yeah. piece of meat. All right, I'm getting the sense then to wind this up. So before yeah. we go, what we normally do is we ask our guests to recommend something for listeners, something they're enjoying at the moment. So to give Carl and Jay a chance to think about this, Andrew, what would you recommend for listeners? So the the movie is a kind of, it's an interwar movie and um, I'm struggling to kind of think of recommendations, but I, I know it's a kind of a, maybe a basic thing to like, but I... I quite liked, especially in my teens, um, uh, uh, surrealism and kind of um, uh, futurism and that's the whole kind of movement in art between the wars. Um, so um, not not that it'll be new to people, um, um, or maybe it will. Um, but the 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 likes of Rene Marguerite, I won't I, 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 I won't tell people to discover Dali because I imagine everybody has. <laughs> and, um, but the, the 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 likes of Joanne Miro as well, but also the, the um, Art Deco kind of works that I always kind of like think of when I'm looking at the the these kind of movies um, set in these periods. The the, the likes of um, Antoine Bordel, who's very kind of um, inspirational. He he was like a, s- a student of Rodin, but he he did um, sculpture, and you can see the effect that his kind of style of sculpture had on a lot of the Art Deco movement. Like you look at the the likes of the uh, Rockefeller Center in 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 New York, and that kind of um, um, that way of kind of um, portraying in a very kind of decadent but modernist um, uh, manner. So I'd, I'd, I'd not n- n- nobody listening to this in 2020 can go to any of these places, but you can <laughs> you can look at photos of them. So yeah. Google yeah. image search. Google um, image search exactly. You can't go. Yeah, when 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 we get back to normality. Hopefully, um, you can around go about to, 2024, 25. Exactly. You can go to 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 Brussels and and visit the Rene Marguerite um, museum there. That's quite good. Or you can go to to New York or Paris or or any of these um, uh, places. And Carl, what would you recommend for listeners? Okay, well, I think what Jay was saying earlier about the poignancy of the cinema stuff in Hugo made me think about the fact that I've had a couple of very enjoyable. Uh, cinema visits recently i don't know how much longer as we record that's going to be possible i don't know i know in your country it's not possible to go to the cinema at the moment it is here in england but i don't know if it will be the case when the episode goes out but i saw and very much enjoyed uh rose glass's film saint maud um yes. a horror piece yeah set in the, an english seaside town i also really liked sophia coppola's on the rocks too so yeah uh, with bill murray of course and rashida jones so i think it's sad because when I've been to see these films, there hasn't really been anybody else there to any in any great numbers. You know, I think there's still some very interesting cinema out there. I understand why the cinemas are dead, but it's very poignant. And I, I just hope it turns around in some way, shape or form, you know, in terms of the big releases coming back, in terms of cinemas being able to safely stay open or reopen. And um, yeah, it's tough. It's tough. I think, you know, a film like Hugo really drives home as well, that kind of, the appeal of the shared experience. I think it's a very nice scene in the film where they have that uh, viewing of safety last. So, yeah, just thought I'd 
point out a couple of nice trips I've had recently to the cinema. Complete with the usher. I love the usher who leans in. Yeah. There you are, you That's filthy it, yeah. rats. Um, you little street urchins. Uh, which I kind of, again, one of those nice kind of cliches of kind of uh, old-fashioned children's films. And Jay, what about yourself? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd echo where I say mod as well, which I really loved. And saw in a packed audience at uh, Dublin Film Festival. No, I okay. think you were there as well, there. Yeah. Uh, it's a very good film. Um, I kind of go much more lowbrow. Um, <laughs> um, a time of recording, which we will, it will remain broadly, we, don't, we won't say when. But I have embarked. Tons we don't co- know who the president of the United States. No, we is. don't. Yeah, maybe we still don't. When, when, when no, it's it's been maybe we know the result, and we're yeah, just not yeah. telling you. It's going well, to the transition when it happens. So. But we actually yeah. do know <laughs> the Constitution but, um, of the Supreme Court. Sorry. <laughs> but we, um, I, I love that I Andrew's think... like we've narrowed it down to a week of podcast. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's a week where it could be recorded. I love the idea that there are people sitting there like train watchers trying to figure out when this yeah. is basically. These bastards are in November. All right. <laughs> it uh, yeah. Yeah. But I've embarked on because of COVID and a somewhat distracted brain that I've had. So to some degree, I've been kind of hard, find it hard to settle on particular films to watch. So I wanted to find something that had a lot of films for <laughs> to watch. So I know what this is. Yeah, I have embarked on uh, a watch of the twelve Friday the Thirteenth films. <laughs> nice, oh, amazing. And I'm only true two love of in. cinema. True love like, of cinema. True love of cinema. Exactly. I've two films in. I'm the third and fourth one to come in the next couple of days. So you know, I'll tell you all about it. But the first one is kind of terrible but fun. The second one was surprisingly better than the first one. So I can't foresee any problem that they're not just going to get better and better. At each, at each Logically extrapolating, film. yeah. Right? I, By this rate, the 11th film will be a masterpiece. Yeah. I'm thinking that's the thing. So don't disabuse me of that notion, anybody who's seen Jason Takes Manhattan or whatever. Uh, but that, Are you that, watching I, the crossovers, Freddie? I'm going to watch everything. Well, there's, there's 12 canonically. Jason, I'm not sure no. which ones are which in that regard, but I'm, I'm watching them. <laughs> Uh, one for better, I love that for there's, worse. A, there's one in space, I, love that, I think. Yeah, there is one in space. Jason I'll, X. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know. <laughs> I, yeah. that. But, I uh, love, by the way, the that one... there's a like Friday the Thirteenth canon. By the way, I love. Oh, this. There's, there's a canon for everything. So, some way there's a Michael Stuhlbarg who's listening to this podcast, like ready to point you and say, "What we're allowed read about Friday the Thirteenth? Are you?" Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, sure, I've watched all your films about Jason Voorhees. You might find yourself disappointed <laughs> by the the um the ninth one, but but yeah, by the, the J- Jason in 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 Manhattan. <laughs> At that stage, I might uh, Stockholm yeah. syndrome might have kicked in. I might, <laughs> yeah. might not that, have made a difference. Dude, like keep keep your expectations of like the amount of Manhattan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Um, so I don't know if these are recommendations per se. <laughs> Can I just point out how crazy it is that there are literally only twelve Friday the Thirteenth? There is no Thirteenth Friday. There will be though. No. I mean, oh, the laws, the sticking law of averages, there yeah. will be. Somebody yeah. will. It feels like when you're making twelve, you just green light the thirteenth one for the advertising potential. You surely do. All right, three very quick recommendations. I'm going to literally blaze through them like bullet points. The first one is that because this is an old movie full of old movie stuff um, and because I'm missing cinemas, 
Um, over the past couple of years, I've been very lucky to see um, old-fashioned black-and-white classic restored films at the Dublin Film Festival. So if you get a chance when movie theatres come back to see silent films uh, in cinemas, they're absolutely beautiful um, and they look fantastic. And I'm a huge fan of silent cinema in general. Second recommendation. While reading up on this, I discovered that the Hugo Cabaret book is actually a fusion of text and imagery, which leads me to believe, and I'm sorry I wait until this point to bring it up, is this Scorsese's Marvel film? Is this Scorsese's comic <laughs> book film? That's a question. Um, but because I'm a fan of segues, using that excuse, I've been reading a lot of X-Men comics and actually really, really enjoying them. So I've been reading um, Jonathan Hickman's X-Men, rereading Grant Morrison's Rick Remender's. Uh, it's really great because I've been killing time while I've been off work uh, reading comic books. They're fantastic. So I would recommend that. And then the third and the final one is because this is about the restoration of things lost. Over the past couple of years, uh, I'm a big Doctor Who fan. In fact, I've recently finished a project involving Doctor Who that I'm very proud of, but I can't talk about yet. Um, but they've restored lost 60s episodes of Doctor Who. So episodes were wiped from the BBC archives, um, a serious chunk of like late 60s Doctor Who. And over the past couple of years, they've been gradually restoring them using like photo telesnaps, using animation and recovering them and basically re-releasing them. And I've really been enjoying those, particularly in lockdown. So these are old black and white kind of 60s BBC television productions that are delightfully cheap, reimagined in animation from the original soundtracks. And if you can track them down, Fury of the Deep, uh, Power of the Daleks, um, the Faceless Ones, they're all really great and well worth seeking out. The Macro Terror is fantastic as well. So that's about me. So... Uh, Carl, where can we find you online? What are you up to? Okay, so you can find me on Twitter at CKJ Sweeney. You can also find my podcast, Movie Palace, at Movie Palace Pod. Um, I don't plan as far ahead as you guys, but as we as we record, I'm just starting to think about what we're going to do in December. So, um, what's your Christmas special? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure what the Christmas special will be, but I know in early December I should be covering a couple of Bing Crosby films, which I haven't done. I haven't spoke about him on the podcast before, so going my way. And then the sequel, The Bells of St. Mary's, which is kind of seasonal. Um, so I'm looking forward to doing that. I need to see the films, purchase them, <laughs> see what I'm making them first. Um, that's what's going to be coming up on the podcast uh, in the next couple of weeks. And then hopefully some Christmassy stuff beyond that too. Nice. And Jay, where can we find you online? Uh, at Jay Coyle on Twitter, complained about this, that, and the other. Perfect. Uh, we'll be back next week with our final episode in our Summer of Scorsese. And also continuing our Christmas coverage with 2013's feel-good Christmas classic, Martin Scorsese's The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, we're really yeah. looking forward to that discussion. No, I can't wait to talk about that. Wait another yeah, week. I know, I'm so excited. Um, I'm really excited. God damn it. <laughs> Uh, but joining us for that discussion, the fantastic Eva Martin, who last joined us for the discussions of Casino and for The Departed, will be joining us again. And Luke Dunn will be joining us as well. So we're really, really looking forward thank to that. Thank you very much. Take it easy, guys. We'll be back next thank week. You. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye. Thank, you. Thank, thank you, Carl. Thank you so much, Carl. Cheers. Cheers. Enjoy Cheers. Nice to meet you, Carl. Yeah. Good